Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. Uh, my name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with John Soares. It's August 4th, 2023. We're at his home in Portland. John, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, first question, as you know, is why wine? Why wine? Well, it's not something I originally was looking for uh, before I got into the business. Um, it's something that very much found me, and I think that that is uh, something that a lot of people in this business would say or have said in this podcast or interview series before Um, but it's something once you do find it uh, it really sucks you in and if you have the character traits that are easily uh, addicted to such a thing uh, it's hard to get out of it it's an infinitely deep pool you can always learn more and you know as uh, humans we like to pursue education I think as much as possible and it allows you to always do that while you're working and uh, it's a beautiful community to be in. Um, if you're into food and wine, uh, specifically, I guess I mean food, uh, it, it, you get to you get to live the good life, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. So I have no complaints and uh, enjoy what I do, and that's the most important thing. I can expand on that later, obviously. For sure, yeah. Well, let's back up a little bit and talk about life before wine. So tell us about where you're born and raised, and kind of your early life. So I am from the Monterey Bay. Um, of California. I grew up in a, the town of Pacific Grove specifically. Um, someone else that you've interviewed has, is also from this town. His name is Grant Coulter, a good friend of mine. You can talk about him later. Um, but I grew up in a large family. My dad is one of 10 kids uh, and he has a Portuguese uh, mainly uh, genealogy, I guess I'll say, uh, from the islands of Pico, so in the Azores, and also Madeira. So I come from, theoretically in my mind, I like to think back uh, generations I never knew, uh, uh, assuming maybe they were working with grapes on some of those islands. Uh, Madeira's pretty famous, obviously, for the style of wine they make. Uh, Pico actually had the very first world UNESCO heritage site vineyard on it, which is an insane labyrinth of little little micro parcels uh, that have these stones built up from the volcanic mountain. So you could think of maybe a Portuguese version of Mount Etna. Uh, Pico is also the the highest elevation in all of Portugal, even though it's not on the mainland. Um, So um, that's kind of part of my family. Um, My mom, my mom's side is uh, Scandinavian and uh, she grew up on a cattle ranch in Montana. Um, So definitely have, I feel like, some agrarian background uh, in my family. Uh, My dad's father uh, was from the Central Valley of California and uh, did a lot of different things, uh, um, but was very kind of involved in community. He owned a grocery store, which really led to, I'd say, the family's love of food and uh, food being very central to all occasions and to events, everything. also in a bowling alley and whatnot. Um, so getting back to, I guess, where I came from in Pacific Grove, um, uh, obviously a area that has its own wine, wine country as well, Central Valley, or Central, sorry, Salinas Valley. It's what I'm referring to, also Central Valley, also close. California, there's wine everywhere. Um, but I didn't 
even though I grew up in a family that was very into cooking and at a very young age, I even my before memories I don't even have, I was for some reason drawn to cooking shows as a kid. So instead of like watching cartoons, I would have watched cooking shows and have like a pot and a pan in my hand. Um, so it's very, been cathartic for me for, from the very beginning. Um, uh, but so despite food being such an element of my growing up, uh, wine wasn't. Um, my mom went to school in France in, for uh, a semester in college and is a big, very much a very big Francophile and I grew up traveling to Europe quite a bit, um, traveling kind of all over, so travel is a big part of my life as well. Uh, and point of the story is I was aware of wine, sure they'd order a glass of wine here and there, but there was never a bottle of wine at the table at home specifically. So it wasn't something that I was totally aware of and just fast forward a little bit. I remember in college kind of, you know, when you first start drinking, uh, walking down a aisle in Fred Meyer and thinking, they all have about the same alcohol and the same amount of wine in it. So what's the, you know, they're all the same, right? So, you know, I, I can think back to more simpler times as well. I definitely drank my fair share of Carlo Rossi and Coke at the same time, uh, which is not a bad beverage, by the way. As long as you don't drink too much of it, that can be a problem. Another thing I, I think that is in, interesting in my cycle of how I got to to uh, wine is I I'm an only child, and my parents uh, I had a couple activities that I was uh, really into that could, my parents could kind of use as a babysitter. One of which I grew up playing tennis obsessively, and I also grew up uh, rock climbing. Uh, because my dad is not a sporty person, to say the least. He's a hairdresser in Carmel. He's 81 years old this year and still works. He's been working there for 50 years. Uh, my mom is a law librarian, so I have parents also that are very yin and yang, uh, and I love that about them, and I feel like I'm a more balanced person because of that. Um, but the rock climbing part, uh, my, my dad could basically take me rock climbing and just blame me and not have to actually do anything. So, uh, and I loved it. So that was a, a, a great thing for me. And I'll get more into that after in my post-college time. I guess we're just doing this all at once anyway, so it doesn't matter. Um, rock climbing, I'll say to fast forward, later on in my life, once I found wine, I realized that my hobby of rock climbing was really the same uh, search for terroir as you would find in wine. Uh, not only metaphorically speaking and geographically speaking, but you're also looking for rocks. You know, this, the rocks in the soil are, are what all winemakers are looking for and to when they're making decisions at least. And some people prefer different soil types. And I could get into that a little bit, but that's definitely not my specialty. And I'm sure that that's been covered by other more uh, knowledgeable people than myself. Um, but um, a long story short, when I graduated high school, I wanted to um, not go, I wanted to travel, I wanted to go to school out of state. I didn't want to go anywhere too close to home. So I, uh, my mom was a duck as a graduate student. She has a master's in library science and is a law librarian. Um, so when I was looking at schools, she recommended I look at or schools in Oregon. I was very much into, uh, I, being from Monterey Bay, uh, Laguna Seca is a, a fun thing to, to get a, a track that's great and a lot of fun events there. So I grew up uh, thinking I kind of wanted to, my, my 
everyone on my mom's side is a very technical person. They were all engineers. My mom's a law librarian. So my uncle Eric wrote uh, instruction manuals on how to repair Boeing planes for 40 years. Uh, my grandfather, who became a cattle rancher after being an engineer, would design his own equipment and weld it together, like hydraulic stuff. And anyway, I thought I had more of that in me than I did. Um, so anyway, long story short, I went to Oregon State because I, I was looking to go into engineering. And uh, U of O didn't have an engineering program, which is the original school my mom had me look at because she was a duck. Um, so I spent uh, my undergrad at Oregon State. And I did engineering, actually, for a few years before just not deciding I wasn't going to make me happy. Uh, I got really into, I took some art history courses. And I got really into architecture. And I thought, this would be something that would suit me better. Um, but Oregon State doesn't have an architecture program. So I, at that point, I was so far down the line of Oregon State, I would have like lost two years of like my life to transfer and start a new major. So I thought, well, I can get build a portfolio and maybe apply to a, a master's degree at an architecture school. So I went into fine arts from engineering. And um, the discipline that spoke to me the most coming from engineering was definitely printmaking, uh, a more methodical, thought-out process compared to some of the other disciplines you might study in college. Not only that, but I had uh, an amazing teacher who still teaches down at Oregon State. His name is, name is Yuji Hiratsuka. He's from Japan and has uh, probably been teaching there for 30 or 40 years and is a very talented intaglio uh, printmaker, but can teach you all sorts of disciplines. Um, and he will show up later on in this conversation as well, actually. Uh, wine, to me, is very much uh, art form. And it's something uh, that is also a lot like printmaking. Print you have to follow some rules, but you can also break some rules. And in order to make a great wine, you have to do both of those things most of the time. <laughs> there are exceptions to all rules, clearly, obviously. Um, um, but I would say that that transition was important to f getting me ready for the wine, wine industry. I also, uh, being out of state, uh, going somewhere out of state, had to meet all new friends, which was important. And I happened to meet a couple people from Alaska, a couple, uh, one person from here who lived all over the world that kind of became my best friends and really opened my eyes to different ways of thinking and thinking outside the box, always questioning how I do things. And uh, that's just benefited me in every aspect of my life. Not specific to wine, of course, but thankful that I met the right people that I did. Um, and then when I graduated, uh, I graduated in 2008. And uh, not the greatest time to graduate from college, let's just say. Um, luckily, my parents are very uh, supportive. And uh, this is going back to rock climbing. Uh, I was very obsessed with rock climbing in the last two to three years of my college career. Um, I was part of the Oregon Mountain Club. Uh, go to Bend all the time, which is a world-class destination. Uh, you know, we all, everyone has a climbing gym in college now, but maybe it was a little less common back then. Um, climbing is in a whole other topic, how it's blown up in the last 10, 15 years, especially in the last few years with uh, the release of uh, Alex Honnold's movie, Yosemite, uh, is astounding. And it's every car ad you see, there's someone rock climbing in it. Uh, and you know, 
even as short ago as 15 years ago, uh, it was pretty obscure. And then when I was growing up, it was beyond obscure. So uh, I'm happy to see where it's where it's how it's come into be basically being a mainstream in the social zeitgeist of uh, American culture, worldwide culture, honestly. But uh, so anyway, when I graduated, I was really obsessed with rock climbing. I had a couple uh, great partner climbing partners, and I basically was able to travel around and live in a van for almost two years of my life. Um, I drove, I've driven to Alaska, I've driven to Utah, Montana, Idaho, Nevada, California, you know, Squamish, you name it, uh, in search of terroir. <laughs> um, and those were some great years and it made me really let me think about myself, what I wanted to do plenty, maybe not what I was wanting to do because I was basically a bum and doing nothing. But at least it cleared the, the, the slate, gave me a blank slate to uh, prepare myself to find, luckily, I found what I, I my passion. So uh, I was living in Terrebonne, Oregon for, um, I'll say about six months, six plus months. Uh, a friend of mine had rented a house there and uh, we went, to, this is to man, another conversation, Smith Rock. I mean, back in the day, you could park at Smith Rock like all the time. It's like <laughs> there's no, there, you know, the the normal parking lot wasn't full, let alone the expansion and then this and the road. So it's it's crazy what that's become. But anyway, grew up, like climbed every day at, at Smith Rock when no one was there with my friend for a long time. Long story short, again, I'm gonna say that so many times in this interview. <laughs> um, I was actually in Portland one day. Um, and I was driving back to Terrebonne from Portland, and I fell asleep at the wheel in just out just outside of Sandy, and I woke up on the side of the road, like not like driving on the grass next to the road. I was like, that's not good. Um, so I went to pull onto the road, and you know, there's a little lip there where the asphalt begins, and uh, you know, I had been I had a '91 Toyota Camry that I. Love that car. If it was still here, I would be driving that car. Uh, but you know, it had seen a lot of road use in my rock climbing days, and I, I had been told I needed to change my rear struts forever. So you could literally just kind of move your hand on the back of my car, and it would bounce up and down. So when my back tires hit that uh, hit that pavement, I just kind of went into a dead spin, and it was actually really calm. You know, there's there's absolutely nothing I can do at this point. So you're just kind of like in a zen state of wondering what's going to happen next. And then I drive up the, like the side of the embankment next to the road. So I like, kind of see like the sky. I'm like, that's not great. Uh, but luckily landed on the back of my car and uh, basically was unscathed, had a sore neck, but decided I didn't want to get in the ambulance and got a hotel room. My friend picked me up that night. Uh, but long story short, again, God, I'm not going to say that again, I promise. Um, totally will. I had, you know, game was over for rock climbing. Uh, I had to, that, that was what <laughs> slammed the door shut. <laughs> so I kind of totaled my rock climbing life in when, I, when I totaled the car, which is sad. But, you know, times that, that chapter of my life needed, was bound to change, and it's better that it changed sooner rather than later. Not that it wasn't great, but it, it was doing a lot of nothing. Not, it's a beautiful time of my life. I would, go back in a heartbeat, but I, I 
wasn't working. Let's just put it that way. That's what I mean by that. Um, uh, so I moved back to California. Um, uh, I needed to figure out what my next step was, and uh, I needed a car. Mom and dad, can you help me out type thing. So uh, I moved back home, and uh, my parents' neighbor, who knew me growing up, um, worked at a very large winery, wine company called Scheid Vineyards, which is in the Salinas Valley, headquartered in Salinas, but the vineyard office headquarters is, is a little bit further south in a town called Greenfield, which is just north of King City, which is roughly, I'll say, an hour north of Paso Robles. Um, and she was like, I know you, and I think I have something for you, you'd like. Uh, there's an internship, and you should apply for it. So <coughs> I'm like, okay, whatever, you know, I need a job, and I can't sit, and my parents aren't going to accept it. No, I don't want to interview for this as an answer. Um, so sure, I'll do an interview. Interview is down in Greenfield, and uh, Monterey, where my parents live, I'm, or Pacific Grove, more specifically, is about an hour away from Greenfield. Uh, I get up, I go to the, I drive to the interview. Like, you know, I, I'd like to be early places in general. And uh, get there a little early, kind of drive through downtown, which is, you know, a few blocks of one street, park. Realize I am beyond a fish out of water here. Uh, English is not the first language, for one thing. Not that that's a bad thing, but I don't speak Spanish. And uh, I just have no idea what's going on essentially but hey I can't any other time someone else I'm not going to interview but my parents neighbor yeah. gotta go to this thing I go to this interview and it's really kind of in a dream state because of my thinking this is not for me so I'm not I'm paying attention but like letting it wash over me a little bit smiling and nodding and uh, Talk, talking to the vineyard manager, who's a super nice guy, uh, you know, great rapport. Um, name was Dan, Dan Lapa. That's not important, but I just threw that out there. Um, and I realize at the end of the interview that I had said yes as I'm walking out the door. And I'm like, I think I just took that job. <laughs> and drove home and in awe. And the, to, to fast forward maybe a little bit, I, I took the job that I didn't think I was going to take. And uh, then I was met with a choice of, would you like to be in the vineyard or would you like to be in the lab? Because this is a, a massive company. Uh, do they do a lot of work for Constellation, Diageo. They have sell grapes to a number of wineries in Napa that should not be disclosed. Um, and a large operation that has a huge wine. And there's just... A, I think that at the time they employed for 450 people, to give you an idea. Then that's not including the crews. That's <laughs> winery, office, X, Y, Z. Or that's probably actually is including the, the, the uh, year-round crew members, not the seasonal crew members. Anyway, I obviously coming from living in my basically 18 hours a day outside, I chose the vineyard. And uh, they gave me a keys to a truck, which they should or should not have done. I didn't do anything bad to the truck, actually. I only got it stuck a couple times as well. 
And they gave me the two-wheel drive truck. So th I, I don't take responsibility for getting stuck in mud. But I should mention a funny story at the end of my show. I'll, I'll remember it. Um, so at the time, Scheid Vineyards uh, farmed 5,800 acres, which is uh, the majority of what is planted in the Willamette Valley. Uh, we were spread across a number of different ranches that uh, ranged from a little town called Picenus, which is very, very close, essentially the same terroir, well, not the same, not the same terroir, but essentially the same place as Calera, very famous winery in California, um, all the way down to a place called Hames Valley, which is just north of Paso Robles, and kind of everything in between. So you're talking King City, Greenfield, Gonzales, that area. Um, so my job was basically to be a liaison between the different ranch managers at the different locations and the, the head ranch manager, which was in an office in Greenfield. Um, we also had our own in-house PCA, which is, not, which is pesticide control agent. So usually uh, a vineyard would basically contract a company that would have their own uh, specialist that would come survey your vineyard and decide what you need to do, whereas we had our own. And I ended up really working a lot for him, mainly. Um, my stupid little gopher jobs don't really matter uh, as far as what I did at Scheid, but it gave me a perspective on what was happening in the vineyard. Um, one of the things that I did do that speaks to maybe the mindset of producers I would, I would uh, represent later is I was in charge of getting vineyards uh, certified at SIP, which is sustainable in practice, which is a, you know, a certification that basically means nothing. Um, but was important to them because the Constellation backed it or uh, some some corporate connection. Um, so I filled you know filled out all these forms and binders and updated these things and I you know would have to deal with the inspector and whatnot. I did everything from that to like bird control where I was like testing shotguns and stuff. During harvest I would uh, I was in charge of trucking. So obviously the a vineyard of that size were machine picking in the middle of the night and we're loading trucks uh, that would be weighing around 80,000 pounds of um, fruit. <laughs> so at a time, and you're shipping uh, you know, 20, 30, 40 trucks a day. <laughs> uh, so that was an interesting, that was a fun time because you were literally up all night. Like uh, you didn't sleep. You slept in your truck a couple night, a couple hours here and there and would wake up and have to drive to a new place. It's, it was cool, it kind of, I liked it. It was an adventure, Harvest was. I, another thing I loved about Harvest was uh, the physical activity of it. Uh, I was, I, was, I didn't have a physical part of it. I was typically at a scale, weighing stuff and making sure it was going to the right place. But there were times where I could break, a, break off and I would love to go pick with, with uh, crews and they'd always be shocked to see someone in my position getting very dirty. Uh, it's picking down there is not like picking up here. Um, I mean, you're cropping down there like 10 tons an acre. Um, double cordon, like crazy trellis systems. You're not using a, a scissors, you're using a, a knife. So you're basically just running and cutting and moving the, the basket under you the whole time. And uh, I tried doing that for a while, but realized I'm, you know, twice as slow as everyone else here. So then I would get into just running other people's bins because you'd follow a, a, a tractor which had, I mean this is for the 
small proportion that we would hand harvest because some clients would you know want us to hand harvest their fruit for them um, so anyway I would just run back and forth with bins until I couldn't run anymore and then I'd go back to the scale and do that I, I'd come back to the office at the end of the day the headquarters and I'd be the only one just covered in crepe stuff and with a big smile on my face and they'd be like what is going on but uh, that definitely does go to one other aspect is working with the crews and uh, when I first started at Shide um, for the first month they put me in a different crew every week to do all the things that they were doing so I could understand shoot thinning and raising you know the wires and XYZ and uh, let me tell you, if I knew I, that, if I thought that was going to be my job, I would have quit hour one instantly. Like, this is brutal. And especially harvest, you know, they're, we're out there, it's like 95 degrees. Like, the, the, the labor that uh, the farm workers did down there is mammoth and still moving to me to this day, uh, considering, you know, what they do and how much money they send home to Mexico. It's, it's amazing. Um, but they were used to someone from Fresno State getting this job and not and listening to country music in their van. I, I'm maybe stereotyping people a little too much there. Maybe you should edit that out. No, I'm kidding. Don't. Um, anyway, they were, they were used to a different type of person being the intern. Uh, and luckily, the person, this is another beauty of this job. The person that worked, was, was the intern before me, was like awful. Because I didn't do much, and they thought I was great. <laughs> so I had that going for me. Um, but uh, anyway, the workers were used to someone that is a different personality than I am having this role. So when I came in and I was rolling down the vineyard blaring reggae, they were like, okay. They were more accepting of me maybe uh, because I was obviously, A, I, everywhere I went, I admitted I knew nothing because I did. <laughs> and so everyone, I, you know, I, 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 I took direction to, from the irrigator, <laughs> you know, they know more than I do. Uh, so I, I like to think I created a good bond with the people I worked around and uh, it was a really eye-opening experience to how difficult it is to uh, work in a vineyard and um, farm grapes. Um, but beyond that, I still wasn't into wine. I, I didn't drink wine still. That was the other side of the company and they did, they did that over there, and I'm over here in a truck. Um, I, I'll, I'll say two quick stories uh, about Scheid. One is uh, it's the only time I've had an out-of-body experience screaming. And what I mean by that is uh, once in the vineyard, I don't know if you know what a tarantula hawk is, but a tarantula hawk landed on me, and a noise came out of me that I could not replicate if I tried. And I tried to shake it off and and uh, it, they have pincers so they can they hold on so that's just kind of riding me. And If you don't know what a tarantula hawk is, it is a gigantic iridescent wasp which is thought to have the second most uh, painful sting on planet Earth. So not too into it. Luckily they don't like stinging humans and they get drunk off basically fermented uh, tarantula juice organs I guess. Um, but one vineyard worker did see this happen and thought it was very funny. 
And the other story, to go back to my truck, is uh, I, like the two, well, a week or two before I, my last day at Scheid, I'm driving over to, to Picenus, which you have to go over a big grade, and I'm driving down this hill and I turn this corner and there's this giant truck jackknifed with a, a big camper in the, in, the, in the road and there's an embankment on each side so like there's just nowhere to go. I had to like stop and I'm like what's going on? It's just an old guy who had run out of gas and uh, um, I was like well I can try to help you out and I have this company truck. It's just a Toyota Tacoma, like I said, two-wheel drive V6, nothing special. Uh, I had some climbing gear in the back. I had a cordelay rope. I had some carabiners. And I'm like, well, I'll, I'll try to, you know, tug you up this mountain, this, you know, 6% grade for a mile or something. This giant truck with a giant fifth wheel behind it. And uh, I get under there and I'm like, there's no, there's no hook because it's like a, a Lincoln pickup truck. So it's like not meant to like do something like this. So like, I I'm under his truck and I, and I realize, man, if a semi is coming around this bend, there's no way, to, there's no time to stop. So like, I'm dead here right now, <laughs> for sure. So then I'm just like, you know, that, that realization, I'm like, oh my God, okay. So I basically wrap this rope around one of his, you know, tire arms and uh, clip it to my, to my, uh, to my hitch, my ball hitch, and get in my truck and just put it in drive and pedal to the metal, redlining this truck going five miles an hour up this hill, like thinking I'm gonna blow up this engine and just walk off the job. It's gonna be awesome. Like, <laughs> you know, like, like how's this for last week? Yeah, blew up my, tr my engine trying to help, help this guy over in Picenus. Um, somehow, A, this this cordelay, this piece of you know, probably six millimeter climbing rope, uh, uh, held because it had been in the back of my truck for two years. So my use-all rope had been in the sun, been like, uh, in in a bucket of water for months. Like should you know, the guy uh, when we got out was like, I can't believe that rope that held. And I was like, me too. <laughs> uh, anyway, sadly he had run out of gas, and he was like, oh, can you go into I feel bad, so this is the feel bad part of the story, because he's like, uh, uh, can you like go into, I'll pay you, can you go into town and get me some gas? And I was like, man, I'm on the company, I'm on, you know, I'm working right now, like, sorry, like, I also like got him like right next to a, a like a, 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 a fire, like a, you know, a forest service firefighting outpost where there's a helicopter, you know, it's like, you know, just walk over there, they have to have gas over there, right? So I, I, I go down. So I go about my work for the rest of the day down at the vineyard, and I drive back. You know, I, at the vineyard we have gas cans. We have our own gas tank and everything. Uh, I could have got him gas, but I thought he would have been taken care of. But anyway, at the end of the day, I'm driving back, and he's still stuck there on the side of the road. And I felt, man, I should have, I, I should have just filled up a gas tank. And it, it, and if I showed up with a gas can, I would have been a hero. <laughs> Uh, not only did I bring him up there, he offered to give me money like when I got out of the car. I was like, no man, you're fine, like, good luck. Anyway, I feel bad. Hope he, got, he, uh, he got on, yeah, hopefully he's not still there. Uh, he, I mean, he had a camper, so he could have lived there for a while. Um, anyway, so I'll wrap up Shide with that and basically say, after working there for a couple years, I was definitely into the business and was like, 
this this particular job wasn't for me, but there's something here for me. And in that time, I uh, you know had Googled wine enough to be like, oh, there's this place that I used to live called the Lamont Valley. <laughs> so, and I wanted to come back to Oregon, which is where all my friends were that I made in, in college. So, uh, I th I want to say it was like 2010ish. I moved to Portland after not just kind of trying to figure out where I might fit in the wine. I, I didn't know where I would fit in the wine business. I had worked uh, some n normal whatever jobs in, in before I got the job. I first My first job, which was PDX Wine. So answer to Craigslist ad, they were looking for a driver. They were uh, one year, they were just about to turn one year old and uh, needed a second driver. And uh, I, you know, Luckily, I had driven around in a van for two years, so I could drive a van pretty well. <laughs> and they liked that. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, for some reason, Michael Wheeler decided to hire me. And uh, we can definitely go into Michael Wheeler, Don Heistam, and the whole PDX gang here. Um, but really quickly, I will say, I started out as a driver. I, that was my first introduction into wine <laughs> as a finished product and uh, the wider world of wine and feel very fortunate to have randomly, not only very fortunate that they hired me, but that a company that represented such a unique catalog of wine hired me. Um, you know, a lot, basically a lot, of the, a lot of those wines in my rudimentary first uh, uh, ways of researching was to go to like read Eric Asimov, like New York Times articles uh, about these 10 wines and blah, 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 this region. And a lot of the wines that he wrote about were also wines that were in the warehouse I was in. So it was a, a easy way for me to, luckily I was representing wines that were easy to excite me, I guess I'll say. Uh, so after really, a, a, I, I don't know how long, a year or two of self-education, they entrusted me uh, with a sales rep position. And I started out uh, selling wine in the Eugene and Corvallis market which is a uh, shout out to my friends down there uh, who I rarely see these days, um, but uh, which was a good uh, stepping stone, I guess I'll say, um, and a good way for me to uh, learn at my own pace maybe a little bit um, uh, what I was doing because I, again, obviously in another situation in a place where I knew nothing. Um, so after doing that for a little while, they started giving me accounts up here, and I transitioned to being a rep up here in Portland. Um, I'm gonna go back here and uh, maybe talk about Don and Michael briefly. Michael is obviously been interviewed, so I recommend that you out there listening, if you are, probably not, uh, that you go check out his interview as well. He's a legendary uh, wine rep salesman, owner of distributors who originally was uh, came from New York um, and uh, became a really great mentor um, uh, and really kind of formed a lot of my first initial thoughts on what wine should be. Um, Don though was equally as important in my career. Uh, he very much actually he was more of an advocate for me becoming a rep than Michael was <laughs> in the beginning. So uh, I appreciate that he was uh, actually the one that saw the poten potential in me to 
get me on my journey. Um, so big ups to him as well. Uh, also, I, ha I have to mention Bonnie Crocker in this conversation. Very important person in the um, wine rep world here in Portland. Has been doing it for decades and um, is you know the apex of what a wine rep, what it is to be a wine rep. Um, Bonnie's husband Tom is also uh, currently the national. Maybe this isn't the right term, so sorry. But national brand manager for uh, Britain. And he had worked at Chehala Mountains as a like a national sales rep before and other places as well, I'm sure. But I don't know his history, but he should share it with you because okay. he's a lovely gentleman. Okay. So the, going back to the PDX thing, you mentioned the, the principles. So I came on the first year. Um, uh, the next person I really need to mention is a, a coworker named Elliot Cartman, who's still a rep at PDX. Uh, Michael is still at PDX, Don's retired, Bonnie is still at PDX, so all the, most of these people are still still there and they do great work. Their catalog has expanded hugely to uh, become really an essential part of the uh, distribution game here in, here in Oregon. Without a doubt, some of the greatest estates are in their catalog. Uh, we can talk about my catalog because uh, it's also great, but that's another time down the road. Um, so back to Elliot Cartman. Elliot had worked at Antiquaterra in, I want to say 2011, but I don't really know for sure. Um, and he, after he, he stayed up here after his intern or his uh, harvest work ended and got a job as a sales rep at PDX. And we became friends. And through Elliot, I met uh, some people that he had worked harvest with at Antiquaterra. So mainly thinking about uh, Andrew Rikers, Graham Markell, so Andrew Rikers of Audeant, who you've interviewed, Graham, who I think you've interviewed, Bononote, um, Matt Perry, who maybe you've interviewed, who is now at Double Zero, uh, were some of the first people I really kind of met in the wine world. And uh, this isn't going to make sense because this is a, was a conversation we had before we started rolling the camera. To me, these were the cool kids. <laughs> and uh, I was like, man, I want to hang out with these guys. And uh, um, I got invited to a tasting at the house Andrew Rikers and Graham both lived in, which was a tasting of all Chardonnay. I forget what the parameters were exactly, but uh, was the first time I met in a group setting uh, a number of these people, and uh, it was definitely the first time I kind of did a really comprehensive tasting like that, where all the wines were blind and we really spent time talking about each one. Um, with different winemakers and going into in depth as opposed to just drinking and uh, was a very transformative uh, experience for sure and um, Let's see so because after that became close friends with these people and uh, That's when I really started I would say my education on the Oregon wine world which I still uh, very lacking, I would say, in comparison to uh, my understanding of wines from Europe. Um, and that's something that, uh, you know, is, was nice to be a, uh, will always be a, a, something I can learn more about here in my, my back door, my door, you know, my hometown area. Um, but uh, I'll go back a little bit because I want to talk about the, or the local growers 
it coinc me meeting Andrew and getting more involved with uh, his friends coincides with me learning more about Oregon wine through the lens of the producers I represented at, Port at PDX. Um, a, lo a long list of great producers, uh, and I know I'm going to forget some people, but um, Teutonic, which was a, a huge brand for PDX in the beginning. I'm sure it still is. Uh, Barnaby and Olga. Talk about eccentric, awesome people. Uh, I'm sure you've interviewed them. They're incredible. Um, the Tom and Kate at Division. Uh, back in the day, it was, you know, he was part of a different project. But I'll just say Chad Stock for the um, to simplify things. Um, Kelly Fox. Um, like I said, I'm sure I'm missing some people. Sorry, it's been a while since I've repped those people, but. Uh, also people that were always kind of thought of as being avant-garde, working with different varieties. Uh, I'll quote Michael here by saying they weren't part of the, quote, penotocracy of the valley. Gotcha, Michael. Um, <laughs> uh, but ex ex coincided with the wines I was representing in Europe and were very interesting to me because they were working with uh, doing things differently than, say, Andrew Rikers, who was working at Antica Terra. So I was lucky to uh, be involved, I would say, with a very wide spectrum of producers here in Oregon that uh, gave me a, a maybe a better understanding or also a thirst. Oh, a producer I didn't re mention is Analemma, which I should have said maybe first because they're most cl closely oriented what I, to what I'm interested in these days. Um, Stephen and Chris do an amazing job out there. It's one of the most beautiful places you can possibly go in my mind. Love the gorge. We can talk about the gorge more later. And I went back on a tangent somehow, of course. Um, but anyway, happy with how I, the people I found in the Oregon wine business when I first became interested in it and learning about it. So uh, from my experiences and my friendships with Andrew, uh, I met Maggie and Nate um, from Antiquatera. And uh, that is really, I would say, where my interest in fine wine started, uh, was meeting Nate and Maggie. Uh, at, at the time, Nate wasn't still working at Antiquatera when I first met him. Uh, so I didn't know them working together and how they built the comparative tastings. Um, but it's definitely a benchmark tasting for everyone in the valley. Even if you're in the industry, it's something that you would love to do. Uh, the food there is incredible. Uh, obviously, it was just written up in the New York Times. You can read that article and hopefully de decipher through all of the, the fluff that it's a, a great experience. And so my first experience, my first memory, I guess I'll say, of being at Antica Terra was helping them make a really interesting sweet wine out of Riesling that was grown by uh, grown by Mimi at at Hopewell Vineyard. And there's not really much more to say than that was my first memory working there, or not working there, but helping out there with Andrew and uh, Maggie has always been amazing to me and generous, kind, welcoming. Um, I'm told I'm very, one of very few people that's actually been inside of her house. So that's a feather in my cap in my mind. 
I, I just went there to pick up a press with Graham once and uh, got offered some, uh, I think it was uh, Beyond Santi or some wine. And uh, one wine, I guess, to, uh, one Antiguitaire story that's interesting is uh, they were big supporters of a producer in PDX, the PDX catalog, catalog called, called La Lune from the Loire, which made a very stylized version of Chenin Blanc, um, some, sometimes some residual sugar. They loved those wines. And uh, I went, went years, a couple years later, I went to visit him with my family, and uh, I brought a bottle of Antigua Terra for the guy. So Maggie would give, gave me a lot of credit for doing that. So I, I feel like I uh, was in her good graces after that, maybe. Um, but uh, more importantly, uh, to go to, to Nate, maybe, who obviously is uh, one of the most interesting men in the world and dresses accordingly. Um, a wizard, obviously. Um, uh, he was starting a project in uh, Hood River called The May at the time, was the working name of what he was doing out there. That was before he owned the entire vineyard. He purchased Pheasant, before he purchased Pheasant Valley, he just had a, few, a couple acres at the top of the vineyard and was living in a trailer with his wife, or, or his partner, China. And uh, we got, we being, Andrew and Graham and Elliot and I guess I should have mentioned earlier, but I was going to get to it later. My say my best friend Jeremy, who uh, we'll talk about for sure. Uh, but we were invited out to his uh, to his property, I guess I'll say, um, one summer evening. I'll, I don't remember what time of year it was, but it must have been summer. And he was kind of unveiling his project to us, at least, and his. Uh, in, in his investor was there as well, a guy named Jeff, who lives in Lake Oswego and is an amazing person. And I don't know Jeff that well, but uh, I've, I've come, I have many encounters with him, and he's a lovely human. Nate cooked a, basically real, real fast. Nate cooked a suckling pig. He tempered like veg, uh, tempered some vegetables uh, uh, from the garden. Magical evening, like oh was the first, I'd say, night I'd ever been exposed to so many great wines at once. Also in an amazing setting, in an amazing context. Um, luckily with a master sommelier there, you know, handpicking these wines. Um, and it really blew my mind, so to speak. And from there, I definitely was interested in, I was, learning and drinking about a price point of wine that I hadn't previously been exposed to. It's not even something that is in the warehouse. You know, you know, these are wines that are hard to find in general, like across the board. No matter even if you represent the state, it's like hard to drink these wines. Uh, and it's not, it's, it's not about the prestige of drinking the wine. It's about experiencing the best art like if you want to be for be a professional in something and you want to be good at what you do and fully understand something you need to see it all you need to try it all so that equally uh, goes for drinking ten dollar wine or canned wine or something like this business takes it, it takes all pieces of it to make the, the larger thing work um, and uh, you know, I, I do think the more expensive wines taste better, but <laughs> so that's an, I'm, 
in general. But th that being said, uh, you know, I would say twenty to thirty dollars is where you want to be retail-wise for to get the the best value for your money, um, without a doubt. Um, so Nate really uh, was important to my development in that sense and uh, would continue to be a, a, a mentor to me, I would say. I mean, he, he would probably think that I am overstating his uh, influence on me because you know, I don't see Nate very often anymore. He's a really busy guy. He's uh, you know, going to be a father soon, so uh, a lot going on for him. Um, but he's a, a super a superhuman dude who can handle all these things. Um, but really credit him with uh, opening my eyes to the fine wine world, I would say. Another person that did that would be a person who sadly is uh, no longer with us. His name is Kurt. He uh, owned a restaurant called Davenport. And uh, he passed away in 2020, I believe. Anyway, so Kurt, amazing person, uh, was a partner in Davenport, um, which is a place that obviously I still have a more than just I have a very large relationship with. We can talk about that later. Um, but this is kind of also where Jeremy comes in. Jeremy worked harvest with Andrew and Graham at Antique Terra, and uh, was among those people that I first really became core friends with in my inner circle. Um, after he did a, I mean, he, Jeremy is someone definitely to interview if you haven't. Um, he started his career here before in Oregon before I did. He worked at Limelson. He worked uh, before at Antica Terra. He worked somewhere else, I feel like, too. Um, he's worked at Abaclaim. He's worked at Lingua Franca. He's uh, was the only server at Davenport for a number of years while Kurt was in charge. And post Kurt is now the only, you know, in charge of the front of house, so to speak. Um, but Kurt was another person that really introduced me to, to uh, fine wine. Um, I can't really give a very good biography on Kurt. I know that you haven't interviewed him, so I'll do my best to give a couple bullet points. He was from Chicago. Um, uh, I think he moved here maybe for with a girl or for because of a girl or something, and uh, got really into wine. He worked at Vinopolis and. Uh, was a lover of fine wine for sure. Started Davenport with Kevin Gibson, who is a very famous, legendary local chef, I guess I'll say. Um, uh, Kevin was the opening chef at Castagna and uh, is a whole another can of worms. And he would be, a, you know, he, he has a great palate. He loves wine. Uh, he loves a very small section of like very high acid, crisp white wines and then Sangiovese. So it might, but uh, has a great palate, great person. And we'll talk about him maybe a little bit more, but down later on. But uh, Kurt would have amazing parties uh, in his backyard. I was his, also his rep for PDX wine. So we became friends because of that. Jeremy was already my friend, uh, my one of my best friends. So. Being, becoming friends with Kurt was uh, second nature, obvious, um, and it, he was uh, a master of hospitality, generosity, and uh, a sharp wit. Maybe I don't know what you'd how you'd put that, but an amazing person who um, really, I guess, is a model for 
a lot of the things that I have done here at this house, um, hosting people and trying to create a space for the community to um, get together and talk about wine or a lot, you know, everything from wine to our lives and have a good time over food and wine. Um, so it was very, very influential in uh, everything I, I, I have going on these days. Um, from here, I guess I'm going to launch into kind of the whole antique, the lingua franca saga, so to speak. But before I, before that, I will mention a great friend of mine named Seth Morgan Long. Um, I met him before he started making his wine at lingua franca, so that's why I'm going to put it before lingua franca. Um, I met Seth because I, this is when I was trying to figure out Burgundy and, you know, these, figure out more about these wines that I was being exposed to. And Seth was selling them, uh, still is, so, uh, you know, it's a whole can of worms that he can talk about if he wants. Um, but I was trying to buy wine from Seth and uh, that's how I came to become friends with Seth is uh, I was a customer of his in the beginning and uh, through our equal passion and uh, we, we all knew the same people and we were all trying to drink the same wine, uh, became very close with him, uh, still one of my best friends and uh, another person that has helped me uh, figure out the wine world, not only here in Oregon with Chardonnay, but also with the wines that he, uh, uh, he likes to drink and he, um, has a passion for, I guess I'll say. So, Lingua Franca 2015 uh, was starting out, and uh, this is a, when uh, Andrew Rikers, my friend, uh, had decided to move on uh, past, uh, move on from Lingua Franca, or, or sorry, move on from uh, Antigua. Antigua Terra, and he was going to make his uh, first wines under his new label, which is called Audant, um, there. And Seth was going to do that as well. And I think I had met Toma before, once or twice, but uh, I'll never forget Harvest 2015. There were no doors on the facility, it wasn't finished. And I went to see what my friends were doing. And uh, Toma the teddy bear, maybe, came up to me and was like, oh, I want to show you around, I want to explain you what we're doing. And uh, my love of France, the wines I represented, and food, uh, Toma and I became fast friends, and uh, still a huge mentor to me, and best friend, obviously, part of my inner circle. Um, he really welcomed me, and I got my first experience of Lingua Franca, or with the, the whole crew, so to speak. I also was already friends with uh, Matt and Kim, uh, who I mentioned earlier, Matt from Double Zero, Kim from Lingua Franca, still. Um, the other two people that were making, or the other people that were making wine there was a, another Frenchman named Alban, who uh, has a room dedicated to him in my house, even, which you can talk about later. <laughs> so, Lingua Franca, I think, was the, the second opportunity I had to meet another group of quote-unquote cool kids. And... Uh, 
basically I was working at PDX, but during harvest I would spend every free moment I had on my uh, down there, uh, helping out, trying to see how the product I was selling was being made, and knowing I was witnessing it from very witnessing it happen by very talented people. And uh, that's really where the kernel of uh, interest to uh, learn more about winemaking started. Uh, you can't mention Lingua Franca without mentioning a person named Larry Stone, who is another person that is going to be you know, influential in anyone's life, probably, uh, not only because of his knowledge, but because of his love of storytelling is maybe one way of putting it. Um, if you, to a tangent to fast forward, I did end up actually working for Lingua Franca for a year in 2021. And uh, Tama and Kim had given Larry, I think a two hour time slot in the morning to the beginning of harvest to go up to the vineyard and discuss uh, what Lingua Franca was all about, how it began. And at the end of two hours, we hadn't even gotten through him being in high school. And uh, <laughs> Kevin and Tom were like, sorry, Larry, <laughs> time's up. He's like, what? I, <laughs> I haven't talked about anything yet. So anyway, he is a, an amazing, infinitely deep well of knowledge about all things food and wine. He is a steel trap for a memory and seems to have boundless energy. I don't know how he travels as much as he does, but kudos to him. And uh, Larry has also been someone that has always given me more credit than I deserve. Uh, and I mean that in, a, in the sense that he talks to everyone the same. He's a genuine person and uh, super open and uh, uh, inviting. Um, through Larry, I met another person there named Josh, Josh Ladaika, who still works there with Thomas and would be a great person to interview. Josh uh, is from Michigan originally, but went to school, a hospitality school in Chicago. And uh, after that, worked with Larry at Charlie Trotter. Um, Josh is younger than I am now. <laughs> so uh, definitely a, a prodigy of some kind. And uh, after the, him working in Chicago at Charlie Trotter, he went to the Bahamas and worked there. I'm not even gonna try to get into that. I can't, I don't know that story well enough, uh, but it would be interesting. I'd listen to that podcast for sure. Um, and then Larry, when Larry was starting Lingua Franca, he contacted Josh and uh, about being his first, basically national sales manager. So Josh moved from the Bahamas to Oregon uh, and Josh is now one of my best friends for sure. Oh, so, so the fir very first vintage, uh, Josh comes in because there's another person that was helping out in the beginning. Um, uh, his name was Junichi. I'm definitely not going to try to summarize Junichi, but uh, Junichi is an incredible human um, who has an amazing property in the Minville AVA, kind of right next to Highland is, I guess, the best way to describe it, and is really um, in, in, intensely knowledgeable, studied person that uh, should be your great white well. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Um, but uh, I just thought I'd mention him because he was uh, him and Josh both helped out in the winery in 2015 with Thomas. Um, so to make a long story short, um, Lingua Franca, through a number of different vintages, was a place for me to go during harvest and uh, hang out with some of the, my, in my mind, greatest minds in, uh, in the Oregon wine community. Um, I mean, people like Steve Dorner make their, made their wine there. Uh, this is a whole conversation about Lingua Franca being a custom crush facility in these in these years, and being I would say an incubator for uh, a lot of thoughts, ideas. I mean, if you also Ken Paulo is right next door, using a very similar ph philosophy. So this little area, the Elamity Hills, uh, is specifically Lingua Franca because so many people are making wine there. Uh, is uh, supremely influential in the style of wine being made, specifically Chardonnay, uh, these days here in Oregon, um, through the lens of Andrew, Seth, Alban, Matt Double Zero, and Kim making really the white wines at Lingua Franca now. Thomas, obviously, Walter Scott. Uh, the list goes on and on. And you know, I know I'm leaving 50 people out. Sorry. Before I mention a very influential trip I took with uh, my friends at Lingua Franca, I will talk. I need to go back and talk about traveling to Europe for both PDX and with my parents, because very informative uh, experiences for me. Um, uh, while I was working at PDX, uh, I think the first trip I went on for wine specifically to Europe was a trip I went on with my parents to the Loire Valley, um, um, where I basically through my company was able to set up a number of awesome appointments at different uh, producers such as the La Lune which I mentioned earlier bringing a bottle of Antigua Terra to him um, and it was really my first taste of the whole travel travel's always been a big thing I think that we've covered that in the sense of you know traveling as a kid traveling for rock climbing I, I love to travel I love to see new things and new cultures uh, new foods specifically and now in the wine business new wines but uh had a number of great trips uh with my parents we've been to the loire valley we've done italy together we've done alsace jura beaujolais i've gotten to take my parents to uh, pierre Auvernois, which is uh, one of like the biggest unicorn producers you could possibly think of and uh he only does one appointment a week it's i i, I only got in because i happened to represent the Dresner catalog. I don't know how other, otherwise that would work for you. I'm sure it's possible. But the point of the story is uh, I'm sitting there at Pierre Auvernois' kitchen table drinking. He's opening wines back to the 80s. Uh, you know, a current bottle of wine is impossible to find in you know hundreds and hundreds of dollars, let alone a 30-year-old version of it. And kind of look over at my parents and be like, you know, someone would like chop off their arm to be you. And they don't they're just like, mm, this is good, you know, it's like, kind of my mom after that was like, you know, maybe we shouldn't go to, with, to you, I feel bad going, you know, drinking this wine because I don't understand it type situation. But uh, in general, they're, they've been excellent uh, travel partners and uh, have let me do the itinerary and are just happy to go wherever I might take them. So I really appreciate that. But I've also been on a couple of great uh, importer trips for PDX, one being also to the Loire with Dresner and 
uh, Louis Dresner, which is a, at the beginning of the PDX world, was really uh, the cornerstone of the catalog and really the, the ethos that we were forming all of their things around, I would say. And uh, they, have, they do a pretty legendary uh, um, sales trip, I guess I'll say, every year. Uh, I very much felt lucky to go the year I went because we got to go to a, a, a number of different terroirs, uh, regions. We started out in the Rhone uh, with uh, like Eric Texier, and uh, which, uh, you know, to get into my own personal taste in wine, uh, Syrah is probably where my biggest love is for red wine, Northern Rhone. Uh, at the time, Texier was a, a definitely a hero and uh, still love the wines. Um, I wish I drank more of them these days. Um, from there we went to Beaujolais and uh, another region that was, you know, I feel like Beaujolais is influential in every wine person's life at some point in their career. Uh, not only is it a joyous, easy to drink wine, but uh, there's, you know, a little, it's an interesting way to ferment, you know, there's carbonic macerations, fun to talk about, uh, the price point's good. There's a lot been written about it. There's famous producers, you know, the Kermit Lynch gang of four thing, it's all five, whatever, uh, is, is there. Um, so on this trip with Dresner, went to Beaujolais next and then really went to the Loire again, which I had already been with my parents. So I'd already had a, an interesting primer and it was fun to go back and re-witness that with a group of wine professionals as opposed to your parents. Uh, I don't speak French, luckily my mom does, so she's a, a good translator, but uh, it's nice to be with a group of wine professionals that are better at asking questions than I am. Especially at this point in my career, uh, traveling with my parents, I didn't, this is like pre-Lingua Franca, I didn't know what questions to ask. Uh, I had an excellent time and uh, you know, got to drink the wines and was able to contextualize where they're from and it was totally a learning experience, but not as much as it could have been if I had known better questions to ask, essentially. Um, so I guess this first trip with Dresner was when I was like, oh man, there's a lot more I should be extracting from people when I'm visiting them. Um, uh, and an amazing trip. At the end of my career at PDX, I, uh, I went to Greece with a, a person named Dionisi, who is a part of a company called DNS Wines, um, and uh, was really a transformative trip. But I think that I should talk about that after the Lingua Franca trip. So we'll kind of go back to where I went off on this huge tangent um, uh, and talk about going to Burgundy for the first time with Seth, Andrew, Thomas, and uh, Dan and Teal, who are the two investors, that, uh, the two people that own Audan, I should say, lovely people. Um, so I was lucky enough to go on a trip that Thomas curated in Burgundy. It was a, obviously you're, you know, I've been, been drinking these wines, so, you know, the entry level wines <laughs> already. Maybe a premier crew here and there. Uh, but it was always a region that I was never going to try to do with my parents, you know, and I didn't represent a catalog that uh, was heavy in this region. So I didn't really have an opportunity and I knew I couldn't do it 
justice on my own. So this was very much my opportunity to go to Burgundy and actually see, actually have like an amazing experience that and it was going to be planned for me. So uh, count my lucky stars that Tomah loves me and invited me to go on this trip. I don't even know why I was invited. I, 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 in hindsight, it didn't really make sense for me to go, maybe, honestly, to be have this, one of these coveted seats. But my life, uh, as you have been listening to, you can tell I, I lead a very lucky life and uh, seem to be in the right place at the right time. And that is, uh, I, I don't thank myself for that. It just thank my stars. Um, so this is 2018, went to Burgundy. We, we rented uh, one of Dominique Lafon's, he owns like a Chateau de Bligny, like a, you know, courtyard walled, basically old castle. And uh, a wing of it was turned into basically a Airbnb by his wife. So we had like a pretty palatial space for a week where we basically traveled around and visited the who's who of producers, uh, you know, such as DRC, Dujac, Rouleau, PYCM, Lafon, Lafarge, Bruno Claire, etc. And uh, I mean, you can't have a more eye-opening experience than that, I don't think. Um, at the same time, it, as amazing as that is, you know, it's somewhat useless information <laughs> other than just your general understanding of the terroir for yourself, because it's not like y y you sell these wines. They're hidden places. Uh, they're, they're unicorns, of course. Um, but really, you know, wowed me and it made me fall in love with Burgundy in a way that I hadn't been already. Um, and uh, I can't say enough about that time there with Thomas and, and having him as a translator and him basically going to school with a lot of these people. Uh, you know, when, I, when Seth and Andrew and I got there before him and we took the train in uh, on like a Saturday and we, our first uh, appointment, essentially, or we were going to get our keys for the Airbnb from Dominique at the farmer's market, who's there, you know, shopping with uh, uh, Michael Lafarge, you know, the, the, and then you're just like, is this really happening? And I have a farmer's market with Dominique and Lafarge at the same time. And that's like literally off the train, here you are. Um, I, I guess I should stop and say, before the farmer's market, we did stop and get a baguette out of a vending machine, and that's an experience everyone should should uh, do once in their life, just for fun. Um, <clears throat> but it's also the most anxiety I've, I think still to date, the most anxiety I've ever had cooking was we hosted Dominique at the Gite for dinner once, and I was in charge of cooking with not in charge, but like we were all in charge of cooking, but like I definitely was planning on doing a couple dishes. And I remember being in a grocery store in France, not knowing where anything is, not knowing how to read a label or anything, and kind of having a, like a nervous breakdown, just like, I don't, and like Thomas like comes up to me, knows I'm like in distress and is like, it's okay, it's gonna be okay. What do you need? I'll find it for you. <laughs> and. Uh, 
go back and cook food at the Gite with for Dominic Lafon is one of my definitely favorite memories of that trip, uh, hosting him and him bringing magnums of wine and these awesome oysters and just partying with a ton of Tomas friends. Um, uh, so yeah, I'm not going to go too much more into depth there other than uh, maybe I did. Unfortunately, at the Rouleau visit, I started to get a stomach bug. Fought through that there. Um, and then Lafon was right after. And then Lafon was, you know, because of his relationship with Tama and Lingo Franca, was going to be a very uh, lengthy visit, let's just say. And I was white, of course. And uh, we're hanging in there. And uh, we're like tasting through barrels, and I'm like literally like lean, like lean, like laying on a barrel. And uh, he's kind of like, "Oh, you guys want to stop?" Like, he looks pretty bad. And I'm just like, "No, man, we're here once. Like, <laughs> let's go." And like, we tasted like every barrel, and I was just at the end, just like, "Just get me to the Montrachet, okay?" <laughs> uh, amazing visit with Dominique, and uh, who is. Uh, incredibly generous and uh, have so many fond memories of him not only on that trip but here in Oregon. Um, we're lucky to have him come here as often as he does and um, be an ambassador for both regions I would say even as he's retired now. You know after being a, spending a week in Burgundy with my friends uh, Thomas went off to kind of spend time with his family and uh, the rest of us traveled to Ch Champagne, um, where Andrew's, uh, like Dan and Teal, they uh, actually stayed at, at uh, Les Avis, so Salos's hotel, uh, Auberge, whatever you want to call it. Um, and Andrew and I, uh, through a friend, rented the entire Laherfi Gite, like harvest sheet. So we, it happened to be an interesting time of year and time of year in Champagne. So when we arrived in Champagne, it was actually snowing. So we'd rented, we didn't know that, we didn't know we rented the, the this like basically harvest mansion. So we like drive up, we're like in the middle of, you know, basically vineyards in Champagne, like where are we going? It's snowing. And we like come to this like giant mansion-y castle thing that the three of us had, like we each had our own floor. <laughs> It was like a haunted house, essentially. Like, what is going on here? So that was an interesting experience for Seth, Andrew, and I to be there. And we, like, cooked some there and whatnot. But uh, because Dan and Teal had uh, stayed at Les Vies, we were able to taste at Salos. We ate there a couple times, which was an incredible experience. Uh, the wine list there is amazing. And all throughout France, you know, it's a different game over there as far as wine lists go. But uh, a particularly awesome um, wine list for sure and food renowned chef the the, the property is beautiful like uh, the curation there I'm, I'm not even talking about the wines which speak for themselves and that's a whole other story that I don't need to go into but Les Avis is like a if you're into like art design blah 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 like it's like aesthetically a, a beautiful little auberge um, I'm sure the price tag is there to match but I don't know what that is <laughs> Um, so the only other thing I guess I'll say about Champagne is uh, spending some time in, uh, in you know, the main cities, uh, going to a couple of, I'll mention in my mind, famous wine shops, Cabe du Forum and uh, Aubin Manger, uh, two places that 
are kind of pilgrimage places for people hunting unicorns and wine. Um, so went there and then sadly Andrew had to leave a day early to fly home. And Seth and I got to go to uh, a producer called Jacques Lasson, uh, which happened to be one of Andrew's favorite producers and they, because they would open those wines and drink them a lot in, at Antica Terra. Um, Seth and I went to this visit, I think we had the 10 a.m. slot. We get there a little early, walk around, meet, meet the guys like, oh, there's another group. They're a little late. They show up and he does this like, goes on to do like this really in-depth cellar tour, blah, 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 talk. Then we go to his tasting room and we drink all these, we, he opens all these wines like uh, the other group who was a winemaking team from um, Corsica, I believe, or yeah, Cor a Corsican producer. Uh, I forget what it was off the top of my head. But anyway, the point of the story is this is all happening in French and like getting some things, yada, yada, yada. But Seth and I are just kind of like having a good time. And Jacques Lassan is like, a, a talk about a madman host, like just like, oh, let's do this, you know. His tasting room's epic, yada, yada, yada. Uh, they have to leave, they have another appointment. So they're like, we have to go, you know, it's like one o'clock or something. And so they, the other group leaves and we think, okay, well, we'll say goodbye to, you know, tasting's over. Lucen comes in and is like, ah, they have multiple appointments. I don't like people that take multiple appointments in a day. Uh, let's, let's, he's like, you guys speak English. He goes back and we do the entire thing again in English. And uh, it's, the only, it's the only tasting I've ever left drunk. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't an amazing experience. Uh, he was super, again, uh, I think you'll find it in my stories and this is a good thing to think about in life. Uh, I'm mentioning all these people that have been super generous and open. Uh, so he, we'd, we'd ask, Seth and I would ask him questions about vinification or something and he'd be like, oh, I think I have, a, I still have a bottle of this. And he'd go back and be like, ah, like I have seven of this left and let's, and we're like, wow. And he's like, let's open it. And you're just, you're just like, you know, you're exploring. It's, it's not about saving, it's about exploring, um, which is uh, important. And that's something very hard for people in the wine business to do. And I say that because I'm bad at that as well. You get attached to specific wines and like become obsessed with opening them at the right time. And uh, typically that doesn't work out and you should just drink the wines. <laughs> there are, again, exceptions to the rule. Aging wine is a beautiful thing, but make sure things aren't too precious, I guess is the point. Um, so that basically, you know, and then we spent some time in, in Paris on that trip, which was also awesome. I'll mention one other, a couple, you know, Paris is an amazing place. Go there. You could spend eight lifetimes there and still have things to discover, uh, not only in food and wine, but culture, art, X, Y, Z. That can be said about all of Europe, which is very fascinating. But um, about two, I want to say two months after I got back from the trip to Burgundy, I got sent to Greece for PDX wine. And uh, I laughed at Michael Wheeler on the phone when he told me I was going to Greece. I thought it was a complete joke. 
I was uh, the rep that probably thought the least of the category. And uh, like, you know, I had just come back from Burgundy, okay? And Greece is a polar opposite realm. Um, so I was like, you're kidding, right? And he's like, nope, you're going to, you know, it was my turn essentially. It was a rotating wheel at PDX as far as going on a trip. And it ha I happened to be next. Um, so essentially that's why they sent me to Greece. Um, but that being said, to say that that trip was transformative was, it's definitely an understatement. Um, so to compare the two, maybe to just preface the trip, uh, which I want to go into a little bit here. Um, I want to check my notes. Okay, it just says Greece. I'm on my own here. Um, wasn't expecting much. I mean, not that's the wrong way of putting it. I was obviously ecstatic to go to Greece and go to Europe and get a, to go to see an amazing place, um, but wasn't maybe ready or prepared for that trip because, and that's part partly because of it was just coming from a place of from the place of Burgundy. So I guess I'll say there are two main differences. You know, growing up going to Europe from America, you are, it's, it's obvious the difference in uh, history, I'll say. Um, when you go to Europe, you're like, man, this is so old, Middle Ages, like cathedrals, blah, blah, blah. It is just so far out of the realm of history that we have here in America. Like, for instance, uh, there was a, a friend of mine, Daniel Fries, who worked at Lingua Franca one year. Uh, he, he's like, I don't mean to, I forget how he put it, he's a very eloquent, amazing person who's making great wines uh, in, the Mo, in the Mosul these days. Um, but he said something like, I don't mean to be rude or anything, but like, the house I grew up in is older than your country. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, and that's amazing. But the point of the story is when you go to Greece, it's like peeling back another layer of the onion. You're like, this isn't, this is ancient now. Uh, and you can really feel that in the culture and the, and, and the terroir and in the, the grapes and everything about the place. So uh, Dionysi, I would say was a part of the reason this trip to Greece was so special was Dionysi was like a master planner or something like the logistics of that trip were pretty mind boggling and impressive to, for someone to put together. And he not only that, but he really mixed the culture and the wine together in a way that is very hard to do on one of these supplier trips. It wasn't just going to, uh, visit producers. We had some time on beaches where it was just like, let's relax on a Greek, Greek beach because that's part of this experience too. Let's go to a museum that has nothing to do with wine because it's important about the culture of this place. Um, let's like go to some like lookouts and talk about, you know, Charlemagne going there and there and here. Um, so that's one part of Greece that was epic was I got to not only, I, I didn't, just go to one region. I literally, we, I got off a plane, got into a van, and drove six hours to our first appointment, and then drove all around mainland Greece, 
uh, ended up on the western coast in a town of Ionina, which is an amazing place that I recommend visiting. Short shout out to Ionina, which I'm not pronouncing right, sorry. Uh, it's apparently the most populated, uh, how do I say this? So basically the castle walls people still live within and of all castles in all of Europe, it has uh, the most people still living within the walls of the castle. And it's a big college town, you're at a higher elevation. It, uh, there's a giant placid lake that is like bordering the, the city. Um, and it's actually, this, this part, this western part of Greece is also kind of the, the forested part of Greece. So maybe the most like you'd be, the most like Oregon mm -hmm. of all of Greece. So from there, we got on uh, a plane and we flew to our first island, which was Kefalonia, which is like an incredible island in and of itself. Um, and then flew to Athens and then got on ferries and went to three other islands. Uh, one being, I'll say, Tinos, which was uh, an incredible visit, like really spiritual, powerful. Uh, visited a producer there called Calathas, who is a uh, was a French is a French Frenchman named Jerome Benda, who uh, was like an art dealer. Uh, but when he was in his twenties, like was basically, as he says it, like a, a Greek island bum, and fell in love with Greece. So kind of like retired and purchased this basically property on the backside of this no-name island. Like, uh, going back to the rock climbing here too, like insane granitic boulders, like you're kind of off-roading to get to this site. Uh, very rustic, let's just say. Um, and working, like bought, bought this property with these like ancient varieties, terraced, it, it's like you're in a, like a, a Star Wars movie. Here you're like looking, you're like up on this hill, like with these little like, ancient stone oval huts that, uh, I don't know, like people are like, you know, herders maybe, I forget, there was, there's a story about the huts that I can't remember. But uh, this whole island also was terraced, but not being used, but like think of like thousands of years of like, year ago, like terracing this whole island because it was kind of the breadbasket for Athens at the t back in the day. Anyway, so he basically started this winery and uh, is kind of a winery air, auberge, Airbnb. it's like a place you could also go stay. Mm -hmm. in what he was fixing, he was in the process of fixing this place up to be kind of a, I'll say, a, a Greek agroturismo-y situation. Um, but I definitely remember uh, a couple things about that visit. Um, touring those vineyards and being in that setting was one of the only times I've like cried for no reason. <laughs> Just be like looking at something and uh, experiencing something and being really overwhelmed. Um, and uh, was just a, a beautiful place. Go to Greece is maybe the point. Um, but to continue on with that visit, um, for lunch, he took us to his neighbor's house for lunch, who was gonna cook us lunch. He had, this is in like a, this valley. There's only, what he means by neighbor is the only other person that lives in this valley. <laughs> We're gonna go to his house for lunch. So we like kind of offer it over there. And uh, it's this guy who comes out of his one room stone house with his wife, you know, an elderly man who had been a stonemason his whole life uh, with jeans on, you know, a, pardon the, the term, but a wife beater on. 
um, and no shoes on, barefoot. And he looks looked like a you know a, a a strong man type dude that you'd see on like a, a circus poster, like to the T. And uh, hello, you know, like he doesn't know us, like, but like welcomed us with the hugest of arms. He's talking to Dionysian Greek, and Dionysi like introduces him to Dionysian. Dionysi like laughs. Uh, he's like, Dionysi's like, he just introduced himself as Crazy George. <laughs> so we have lunch in his one room house that he's like, you know, set up a number of tables in the middle of. It's built around one giant stone for to so that rock would be the insulation essentially uh for the house there's like so there's a room i, I guess there's like a bedroom somewhere probably not it's probably like i don't know and then there's like a little corner of a kitchen and stuff he has another like little stone outhouse not bathroom but like a stone house where there's like a big uh stone oven that he's cooking this like lamb in and we have what is easily one of the most unforgettable uh, meals I've ever had. Uh, the food was great, but I'm not talking about that. Uh, I'm talking about the experience of being somewhere where no tourist could go and was really special for me. I'm sitting there uh, thinking about my family and this is like what they would have, they would have loved this one thing on this trip more than anything to be like in this real of an environment so far removed from any part of their normal life. Um, to be in the most rustic of settings, having someone that you have no right, no reason to know, uh, hosting you in such a like generous way. Um, I just had like, even everyone on the tour was like, you had the biggest shit-eating grin on your face that whole time. And I did, man. I just like wanted to be in that space forever. And I'm thinking to myself, like, man, as much as I'm loving this, picture this guy who's hosting us. If you told him when he was a kid that someday in your little hut, you're going to host a group of American wine people. Uh, like, he would have, you know, it made his day too. Mm -hmm. Maybe more so. And uh, definitely never forget that. Um, to go back to his not wearing shoes part, uh, he broke it, someone broke a glass on the floor during this visit. And we're all like, George, watch out, broken glass, you're not wearing shoes. And he looks at us and just laughs. He gets up and he starts stomping on the broken glass with his bare feet and just sits back down. He's like, he's like it's okay. <laughs> and we're just like, this is, this is like the type of like, this is a surreal experience. Um, and then we had one, one guy on our trip named Brian who sadly passed away recently, definitely uh, burned hot, let's just say. And he definitely liked to drink and he mentioned, uh, you know, there, there's so many different terms for grappa, rocky, uh, palinka in Hungary, you know. I'm forgetting the exact, rocky is used in Greece, but uh, Ciprio, there we go. So he mentioned Ciprio to this guy. And he's like, you like Ciprio? And like, gets up and uh, leaves the room. 
Meanwhile, the winemaker who took us to this lunch is just like, you know, F. This is not good. And he's like, he, and he like stops all of us. He's like, okay, so just so you know, we're gonna turn a corner here now that you mentioned Cipria. So he comes back with these like two like liter water bottles that he's repurposed for like his own grappa essentially. And he's like, we have to like finish one of these guys. Uh, so that did happen and we all got extraordinarily drunk and so much so that we actually derailed the rest of the t visit with this producer. Like we couldn't go to the winery after that. Uh, so we all kind of get back to our, the place we're staying on this island and uh, also never forget this because that, and, and find out Anthony Bourdain had killed him, had passed away. So it's an easy way for me to remember what day this was because of that event. Um, and I'm not trying to do some whole Anthony Bourdain story, but uh, that's when that was. Um, from there, we went to Santorini, which is an incredible terroir, uh, a really interesting way that they, you know, train their vines on the ground in a basket because basically it doesn't rain there. So the only way that the vines get water is basically a, a, a weather event that the island occurs or uh, creates by having the wind flow up from the sea and basically create fog at the top of the precipice and then that rolls down the back of the hill and that the the volcanic soil because ash is so good at absorbing liquid you know absorbs a little bit of that fog and that's what the vine is drinking the whole time an incredible terroir however you know I hope I don't offend anyone by saying it was probably my least, even though it's like the most famous place to go in Greece, it's kind of like, you know, if you're, it's, it's the most touristy, it's, it's, I would equate it to the Venice of Greece, you know, it's a beautiful place and of course go there, but just know it's going to be kind of Disneylandy. Um, so from there, we ended our trip in Crete, uh, where we visited a producer called Ekonomou, definitely getting that name wrong. Um, but uh, if there's one, if, if you could somehow interview one person worldwide who is a wizard, that guy's a wizard. Uh, he not only was a, is a certified nose, so like a perfumier, like mm -hmm. that's like exponentially more difficult than any kind of wine certification as far as your sense of smell goes. Um, he worked in Barolo at some prestigious estate. He worked at Chateau Margaux. He worked in Germany and is just like a, a true master of his craft and uh, is making some incredibly stunning wines there from his crazy, he he's, it was insane. Um, the way he could, the way he made wine and blended wine was really outside the bounds of what I still believe is possible. And it's having visits in, in Europe with the, some produ a lot of producers, like, you know, you're going to end at like two in the morning or something, and they're not spring chickens. Like, I don't know how they do it. Uh, so the, basically, at the end of this visit, which I, it, it's a whole podcast to talk about that, uh, he's like, well, let's go. He had this big, big vinegar project. He's had this whole other, like, 
garage warehouse where he had like a 15-year-old Solera vinegar, like thousands of liters of vinegar that he was, he was a hoarder big time. Like he had, he had all these little parcels that were his grandparents and like on every one it was just like, you go into a, like a, a shop where you'd typically find maybe a tractor or something and you would find sure that and then like 10 other vehicles and then like all these like wires and like boxes of macaroni. And this is like, what is like food, like uh, dried, dried goods over here. And there's like farm equipment over here and like a welded together car over here that apparently they all work by the way. So we go to get some vinegar and he has, he, he like you said, I think he has, he has like 50 working vehicles or something. It's like, he's a mad tinkerer too. Uh, Dionisi said that when he first met him, he picked him up from the airport in two cars, two different cars that were welded together. <laughs> he had a tank. He had an actual, like a, like a, a tractor, like not like a tractor tank. I know that, you know, they have those, but like a, an ancient one there is anyway. So we go to the, we go to this vinegar place and most of the people, this is at two in the morning. Most of the people are in the, the van that we've rented, but I get in his truck with one other person and we get to the gate and it's locked and I'm in the back seat, you know, tiny back seat and there's a bag at my feet and he grabs this bag and he picks it up and there has to be like 100, 200 keys in this bag. And he rummages around for like maybe two seconds and pulls out a, one keychain out of 100, buy a key, gets out and unlocks this gate gets back and just unceremoniously throws it back in the bag and throws it in the back of the truck. And the person I'm with in the, on, from the trip on, in the car, we look at each other, we're like, what, what? Um, so that was, so that was the end of the trip to Greece, which really reformed, re broke the mold that I just w had in Burgundy. Uh, not, not, not broke that, but like I got to experience yin and yang back to back in a very short period of time. And uh, a takeaway, and this isn't a dig on Burgundy, even though it might sound like it, um, as amazing as that trip it was, uh, the mindset in Burgundy, because of how prestigious it is and how world renowned it is, uh, the producer is used to people coming and visiting them and gushing over the wines. And it's very much at the end, you're welcome for company for this visit. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Greece, it's much more, thank you for coming. Mm -hmm. And uh, neither is right or wrong. Uh, it's just a different experience. And uh, both are amazing, but uh, I would definitely recommend everyone goes to Greece in their lifetime at some point. Um, not necessarily because of the wines, even though they're great, but just because of the, the great wealth of history that is there will speak to anyone that goes uh, on a deep level. So um, when I got back from Greece is pretty much, I think what year are we in? this is 2018. Um, well, I, I, you know, Fast forward after getting back from Reese a little bit, but I, th I think you can tell at this point in the interview that my interests were starting to uh, veer a little bit away from my job at PDX Wine. PDX and I parted ways in July of 2019. Um, still 
obviously very close with all of those people. Um, and uh, I, I guess what, what I'm trying to say is this stems from me working, like not, not working, but like helping out at Lingua Franca and really becoming interested in the winemaking process and um, really being becoming dissatisfied with my knowledge of how the product I was selling was being made. Um, so in this kind of transition where I was trying to figure out my next step, um, it was kind of an obvious thing to ex explore what it meant to actually make wine. Um, so uh, this is 2000, you know, about to be harvest of 2019 and Andrew's uh, longtime friend from his time working in the central coast of California um, knew a gentleman named Dan Estrin, who I know you have interviewed, um, who has an incredible background in wine, but is actually from here in Salem, but made cut his chops in California, so to speak. Um, he was uh, moving back up here to start working at Christum. And uh, Christum um, needed a, uh, some interns still. Um, so I signed up to do harvest at Christum in 2019, which was my first um, real experience working in a winery. Um, because, you know, Antica Terra or Lingua Franca was very fun, but, you know, I didn't have any responsibilities. I was there on my own time. So when I got bored of being at a sorting table, I could get up and walk away. And it was awesome. I could just choose what I wanted to do. So Kristen was the first time where I was, uh, you know, a soldier and uh, uh, an infantryman to, for, to be sure. And uh, Dan is a very interesting person. I recommend you listen to his interview. Um, he, uh, he, he, Andrew's nickname for, for Dan is the sledgehammer, which I think is very adequate. He likes hard things. He likes to put himself through difficult experiences, which is why he thrives so much during harvest. Uh, I've never seen Dan work out a day in his life, but he's somehow like one of the most cut strong dudes I know. I remember when I first worked there, I was cleaning barrels and we were trying to save lees and I was dumping all this lees into a drum that was on the floor on a, on a hand cart. And I get like the drum mostly full and I'm like, how am I, how are we going to move this? It's like, you know, I would try it a couple times. It's like, all right, well, like, that's like beyond what is possible. So I'm like, hey, Dan, I don't want to do anymore. How are we going to move this? Like, it's too heavy or something. He's like, what do you mean it's too heavy? He just like walks up to it and just like, he just like lifts it up. I was just like, what? Are you serious? And you know, I'm like, you know, at this point in time, I definitely lost my strength from rock climbing. Uh, I'm mean, now definitely have no muscle but uh, I at one point in my life knew what it meant to be strong and uh, that was still outside the realm of possibility in my mind um, that's a, a big tangent <coughs> but Kristen was an amazing experience not only for uh, the working at one of the most in my mind the greatest one of the greatest wineries in Oregon I'm not gonna say the greatest even though I'd like to because I don't want to offend anyone um, but uh, their terroir there is amazing. Uh, what Dan's doing with biodynamics there is really awesome. Um, 
what was already one of the greatest is only going to get better. And uh, the reason why I say it's you know one of the greatest, if not the greatest, is because of a gentleman obviously named Steve Dorner, um, who is uh, one of the kindest, most knowledgeable, humble people you could possibly meet. Um, and that also ties back to my time working with Scheid in California very loosely, but in the sense that he started his career at Calera, which is a, in Piscinus, where I started my career, um, and was uh, the winemaker there for, I don't know, I'll say 20 years before moving up here and taking the job at Christum, where he's made some of the best wines over the course of the last, I'd say, four decades. I think his first vintage was something like 92, so it's more like three decades. Sorry. Um, but uh, so the, in 2019 was the first year that they worked side by side. Um, uh, definitely still sticking to uh, the, I'll, it's not like it's a recipe, but I'll just say the, the philosophy of Steve on the red wines. But was it, what was exciting in 2019 uh, was working with Dan uh, in the white wines, um, which is what he really, I would say, s specializes in and brings to the table. I, I don't think Steve would get mad at me for saying he doesn't um, care as much about white wine as he does red wine. So for Christum Chardonnay, it had always been maybe uh, an afterthoughts, maybe a harsh way of putting it, but in essence, that's what I maybe mean. Um, so with Dan coming on board, really bringing the, the white program to the same level of a very historic red, red program. And it was uh, exciting to work very closely with him and see that transition and learn about white wine making from him, which was something that had always been a focus of the people I was around already at Lingua Franca, uh, obviously Seth, but Andrew and Thomas and Alban all also very much love white wine and pride themselves on making uh, great versions of Chardonnay. Um, the other awesome thing about, uh, I'll tell one story, Steve, t story about Steve real quickly to maybe describe how um, awesome he is as a, as a human. Uh, when, I've, when Harvest started, we were tasked with uh, bottling the Mount Jefferson Cuvée before Harvest, so there was room in the cellar, which I will go on a tangent here and say, back in 2019, they were still stacking three and four high. So everyone that works at Christum now and thinks it's tough, it's only too high there, down there now. <laughs> I got to tell you, it was, Kristen was, was, was pretty brutal. Like, it was a brutal first experience, uh, um, cellaring wine that way on a rack when you're, you know, and it's so, it was so, it was so cramped in 2019. This is before they had the new building. So everything had to fit down there. And we were making more wine than we ever had, especially with the Chardonnay program. Um, so basically it meant there was nowhere to put clean barrels to have them ready, so you had to restack them. So it involved bringing barrels down, cleaning them, putting them back up, bringing them down, filling them, and then like later on in vintage, when you're you know dealing with the previous vintage and uh, racking those to tank, you're having to destroy the whole thing again and build it back together. So it was really backbreaking work. Uh, I worked with a guy. Uh, who you should interview named Mike. 
Davila, who lives down in Corvallis, who uh, has worked at a number of states. He worked with me at, at Lingua Franca in 2021 as well. He's from Australia, uh, amazing uh, person. And uh, anyway, worked construction in a previous life and was very, very strong. And even for him, I think even he would say it was pretty brutal. <laughs> anyway. I had a great time at Kristen, let me tell you. No, I really did. Uh, and the, one of the magical things about it was they have, have an intern house. So uh, as tired as you are, you don't have to drive home. You can walk down a dirt road and collapse on your bed, um, which is like worth its weight in gold during harvest for sure. So one of these nights, I don't know how exactly, but the garbage disposal got stuck. And this is during the Mount Jefferson cuvee bottling. And there was a, a little snafu and Steve had to stay there all night filtering, like filtering the wine essentially. And uh, you know, it's just like two in the morning or something. He's up there, you know, old Steve, like doing his thing. And we call him, Steve, can you come fix the garbage disposal for us? Cause he lived in this house for most of his career in Christum. I think he lived in that house for like 20 years. Uh, and it's, there's no like heating. It's like no, no, no like carpet. It's like a, that's a vineyard. It's like a harvest intern house that, th this is Steve. Like he's so unassuming, like this is fine for me. Like it, it works. Anyway, he's a, he's an engineer in his mind in the way he approaches things in his background from microbiology. Uh, so can fix anything. So came down and, and fixed this while he was staying up all night, like filtering at the winery. Um, you know, he's also done some interesting things like drop a, a forklift through a, a <laughs> he tried to drive a forklift onto a trailer with wooden boards and that didn't go over so well. That's a whole story that you can ask Tomah that he'll probably ask me to get edited out. But uh, that I'm not going to say. Um, but Steve was a, another kind of amazing person to luckily come across my path. I didn't seek out Steve. I mean, I, I knew who he was from his time working at, at working or helping out at Lingua Franca because he made his uh, Luke Jefferson wines there. So you, again, you'd see him there like we'd all be done and he'd come in at 11 or 12 to do punch downs at Lingua Franca after working at Christum on his way home. You know, this guy's a machine. Um, and then would stop and like talk to us at Lingua Franca anyway. So that was my first encounter with Steve, but I didn't really understand or think too much of it at the time. And I didn't go to Kristen thinking I'm going to learn from Steve. It was kind of after the fact that I realized I, what a legend I happened to be around because I had really gotten the job because of Andrew's relationship with Dan. Um, but there, the other, a couple other people that worked there, uh, first shout out to Andy, uh, who's a gentleman who uh, has worked at Kristen for as long as Steve has. Uh, maybe one year less, but uh, has basically been the cellar hand master there for uh, all of eternity and uh, is has to be one of, if not the sweetest human beings I've ever met. Um, on his lunch break, instead of eating lunch, he would go around and put uh, food in the bird feeders. Uh, it's, it's been a Dan converting to biodynamics and bringing uh, sheep onto the property has been awesome for Andy. Uh, I mean, they're like his children and he's also now in charge of bird boxes and stuff. And, uh, I can't talk about my time at Kristen without mentioning Andy, uh, who is a beautiful human. Um, but I also met Chris 
who is now the enologist. I know you've interviewed him. He started making recently a label called Liska, which uh, I'm lucky enough to sell at the, my current current place of work, which is Lone Wolf, which we'll talk about later. Um, but I also met uh, two people named Lucas and Alana there, as well as Mike, who I already mentioned. Um, Lucas is from Australia and uh, is actually uh, moved back here last year and is uh, helping start uh, a project for a very interesting, eclectic, a uh, sweet man named Marco Priete, uh, and that's a project that I'm sure will be and should be on your radar in the future. Uh, it's actually, a, they're making wine here in Portland uh, in an urban facility that they've started, um, but uh, they also purchased a property, again, right next to Junichi and uh, Highland, um, a very interesting terroir, and they're doing very interesting things. Alana uh, stayed on at Kristen and uh, became uh, basically another cellar master there and worked there for a number of years and uh, since then is left and is now working at Portland Wine Company here in Portland. Um, so met another, a couple other people that are now uh, finding their way in the uh, local wine scene. And we all live together in this, uh, in this harvest house that was uh, a magical experience. And uh, it was, uh, to be my first was, uh, was, uh, was very lucky, I'd say. If I had had a bad experience, I might have been scared off, <laughs> but I wasn't, and I, I kept going. Um, um, after that, uh, because of my friend, you know, I still was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, um, uh, and my friend Matt Perry, who I've talked about a couple of times, uh, now the winemaker at Double Zero, but it used to be at Adelsheim for a number of years making white wine there. Um, he had uh, friends and had worked in Tasmania at a place called Stony Rise with a, name, a man named Joe Holliman. And uh, was, he was looking for an intern. It was a small operation, um, a more natural leaning sense of the winemaking realm. So uh, because of, he was small and was making wine in the way he was. Uh, only needed one guy, so I signed up to be his one intern in Tasmania in the brilliant year of 2020. Um, when I flew to Tasmania, the day I flew to Tasmania was the day the NBA closed. And I remember being at the airport, seeing that on the screen and being like, interesting. <laughs> uh, so, Basically, when COVID blew up, I was on an island, off an island in the Pacific Ocean, um, visiting Tasmania and working in Tasmania. Sadly, I, you know, I we it was a guesstimation when to fly down there as far as when would harvest start. And I got there. Harvest ended up being a little bit later than expected, so I got there a little earlier. So kind of the first week was. Uh, traveling around to some vineyards that we were go going to pick and seeing the the terroir which was awesome but uh um a little unexpected maybe to not be like thrown right into it i guess i'll say um uh, joe and i was living with him and his family he had three kids so i would i basically kind of became a babysitter as well which was interesting i actually loved it and they, they uh, the kids were great, and uh, uh, you know, I'd help them. Like, I helped his daughter like build a boat for her class. You know, 
they, they loved it. They were like, man, you're really good with kids. And I was like, that's shocking. But I guess it's because I'm a kid still. <laughs> I'd, have to, I'd have to go play soccer with, the, with one of his sons like for at least an hour every day. He'd you know, try to score on me and stuff. And some, sometimes I'd let him. <laughs> anyway, uh, that lasted. In hindsight, I should have stayed. Um, Originally, I was going to like do a whole like two. I was going to work work here for like a few like six weeks, and then Lucas, who I met at Christum, was in Australia because he's from Australia, and I was going to do a whole like after I harvest like tour some Australia with him, which all obviously got side or got destroyed by COVID nineteen. Um, hindsight, like I was saying, I maybe should have stayed. It probably would have worked, but you know, at the time. Every flight I could book would be canceled a couple hours later, and I was like, kind of in the mindset, like, man, what if happened? Something happened. We just, no one, obviously, no one knew, knew what to expect at this at this early stage of this event, and uh, I'm in a foreign place. Kind of, it was just uncomfortable after a few weeks of like the dire news, and like, man, what if something? You know, my parents get sick, and I can't go home to see them, and whatnot. You know these scenarios start running through your head and my plane my plane every plane ticket I can book is being canceled so I'm like I'm gonna like get home mm -hmm. uh, so sadly I didn't get the full Australian Tasmania experience though what I did see was amazing and beautiful and I would love to go back and visit uh, them the wines are beautiful I have some still that uh, I've been saving to drink with Matt Perry and some other friends that, that know Joe um, but uh, it was an adventure getting home for sure. Like uh, Tasmania had an even stricter set of rules. And Joe, you know, at the time was like, because I was like worried about it. He's like, well, you know, we're an island off an island. Like we're like, it can't get much more insulated. So like, we're pretty good here. Um, so, and they had the most strict rules of all of Australia. So the problem with like the whole, my flights getting canceled and trying to get home was like, once I got off, once I got on that plane and lifted off from Tasmania, there was absolutely no way to get back onto the island for me. So I was definitely like a little vulnerable. And, and uh, so when I landed in Melbourne, then this like hour flight, my flight had been canceled. <laughs> so I'm like, sweet, <laughs> really stuck here. So my plan was at the time like to really like rent a car and drive to Lucas and like ride it out with Lucas and his family. But luckily, like my mom is an insane planner and war you know tactician so to speak call her and like somehow got on like like the last flight through hawaii's airport which was about to close to made it home and uh covid hit and uh i don't know what to say much about that other than uh, my cellar got massively depleted i drank a lot of wine with jeremy and morgan and uh basically rode that out into the next harvest, which was uh, the 2020 vintage here, which I decided to work for my friend Grant Coulter at Flanor. And <clears throat> Grant, uh, just a brief history, I mentioned it before, is from the same place I'm from, Pacific Grove, California. His wife, Renee, also from the area, went to a different school. Grant and I both went to Pacific Grove High School. Uh, Renee went to York. She was a York dork, and I hope you add that. Gotcha, Renee. Um, who are two of the most beautiful people in the valley, uh, inside and out, and also the wines reflect that. Um, this was a vintage two of being a huge bummer. Tasmania, COVID, and then 2020, obviously, with the forest fires here, really cut that experience short. 
which is regrettable. But uh, the time I did sp uh, spend at Flanor with Grant uh, was very memorable. Um, awesome, um, awesome person, awesome wines. And this is before they had the new, they were just, they had just purchased that new building. So we were making the white wines over there um, in a basically empty giant room with a press and some barrels. And then in the old building, which I'm not sure who's there now, but uh, which is in Carlton and walkable distance, uh, a nightmare of a facility to make wine in because it's so small and different rooms and like the pad has like, let's just say driving a forklift around in the, and there was very difficult and I wasn't very good at driving a forklift at that time. Um, but uh, Flanour owned by, I want to mention Marty real fast. Marty, the owner of Flanour, is uh, one of the nicest people you can meet. And I had actually met him previously one night at Le Cave. Um, a friend of mine, Jeff Veer, who I've known forever and is also, I should mention, is a very influential person, the winesman. I mean, you want to, he's someone who could talk for beat you know, all of us combined. Yes, uh, he is a very intense person. Um, uh, but uh, man, what a nice guy and what a wealth of knowledge. Uh, and also with that, another producer I didn't mention earlier with the PDX list of producers, I knew I'd forget is John House of Ovum Wines. Uh, <coughs> I mentioned that because they both own La Cave and they just opened La Orange, which is going to be a, an amazing restaurant to go to here uh, as it gets opening. Uh, Chef Joel from uh, the old days of Holdfast, which you know I could go on and on about Portland restaurants, but I'm trying not to do that because that's another five hours of your life. So I'm at, I'm at Le Cave um, with PDX. I'm still working at PDX Wine. I'm just happened to be sitting next to him. And I don't know, I got on the topic with a friend I'm with uh, talking about Ex Novo and he's like, oh. or sorry, yeah, Ex, Ex Novo. Um, which Craig Williams, I mean, those vineyards that he farms is some of the apex of in farming in Oregon, uh, some of the most sought after fruit, specifically for, for Chardonnay. I'm not going to go into that because it's, I'm out of my depths there, so to speak, but um, definitely an avenue that you should explore if you're interested. Anyway, you know, I, I briefly, important story, I briefly met Marty at Le Cave, like years before, and uh, he didn't know I was, took this job at Flanor. And the first time I see him at Flanor, I'm like, oh yeah, I, I, I've met you before. And he's like, yeah, like, your name's John at Lacave. Like, we talked about Ex Novo. Just like a, talk about a steel trap. Like, one of the sharpest guys, but also is the guy who is getting up early to get the, to get in the Izuzu flatbed truck to pick up the grapes at the vineyard and bring them to the winery in the morning. Like, really, like, like he's on the sorting line. Like, wants to hear your life story. Like, uh, but at the same time, you know, he built like a, you know, a 600 person in financial company in Washington DC that, you know, like a very like sharp, but obviously sweet and generous person, you know, getting back to the generosity and the kind nature of a lot of the people in the wine business, which keeps people coming back to it and makes it so hospitable. I mean, the wine business is hospitality. So it's an important aspect of what we do. Um, uh, so yeah, sadly, Forest Fires, uh, Grant was definitely one of the first people in the valley, I would say, along with 
some other people have mentioned, but I, I guess that what I'm trying to say is in 2020, there was a lot of people that just wanted to dig their head in the sand about the forest fires. And we're like, it's there, let's pick it, let's see what will happen. And Grant was definitely the mindset of like, this, I'm not like, why are we wasting money and energy to do something that we know will, will not work? Um, so we picked a lot of wine for sparkling base and we, you know, made white wine. But uh, we did originally in the first few days pick some red fruit and had a couple fermenters that we were experimenting with by like basically uh, sous viding some grapes to, to uh, act as like a fermentation temperature and then tasting the wines afterwards. And also, Thomas was, was very influential, I'd say, in the valley uh, in his openness to have people come taste the wines that he had tried to make in the beginning and be like, this is barbecue sauce, and here's the warning, like, this isn't working, like, and as opposed to hiding it, hiding the difficulties and the, from maybe you could say a failure of being able to make wine this vintage, Tomas is an open person and like a, and uh, I, I say that because Grant and Renee went down there, uh, Tomas hosted a number of winemaker friends to, to taste some of the wines that were smoky and Grant came back and was like, it's over. Uh, <laughs> next week's the, the end, <laughs> you know? So that was a bummer, but, uh, and sadly I don't get to see Grant and Renee as much as I'd like. Um, uh, you know, we all live busy lives and especially having your own wine brand and as well as uh, having a, a day job at another winery, like it makes schedules very difficult. Plus half of us live in Portland, half of us live in McMinnville. Um, it seems close, but you know, when drinking is involved, it's not. After, after that, I, I basically did some odd jobs. To, uh, I'll just kind of fast forward to the next vintage uh, I worked, which was the very first vintage I actually was hired and signed a contract for Lingua Franca, only as a harvest intern, of course. Um, so that was an exciting experience and a different experience. I could no longer just walk away from the sorting table when I wanted. I could no longer be like, ah, I don't want to do that. I'm just going to like eat some leftover food and watch people do stuff and drink wine. Um, and it is also, it was also awesome, interesting because I basically camped out behind the winery uh, where they have that essentially uh, the foundation for a future tasting room currently. And uh, so it was awesome to work there with my friends for the first vintage. Uh, Mike Davila, who I mentioned earlier, uh, that he came back. He worked at a previous vintage in 2020 and came back and worked there again in 2021 with me. And uh, a real, sh a quick shout out again to obviously Tama, but a uh, huge shout out to Kim, who really orchestrates what goes on there during harvest and is a mastermind of the logistics. Um, uh, there's a guy there, I think you uh, interviewed named Joe, who uh, also uh, had worked with Dan at uh, Literai in the past, who is uh, an incredibly kind person who's great at explaining things in depth. And uh, lastly, I guess part of that team, the core team there was a, a gentleman named Chase who no longer works there, who is a, a super intelligent guy. and. Uh, worked with a great team in the 21 Harvest at Lingua Franca. Um, and uh, it was also the very first year that Andrew Rikers and I made wine ourselves. 
which kind of gets us into a topic of uh, maybe what I'm doing now, part of what I'm doing now, which is a project with Andrew, like I said. Um, going back to my PDX wine days, uh, Andrew and I drank a lot of Albarino and Minthia together and always loved those varieties uh, when I'd bring them home and open them. And uh, it's an obvious, you know, it's, we're not the only ones thinking this, like an obvious uh, uh, connection with the terroir of Oregon and the terroir of Galicia uh, as far as climate goes. Uh, so. Uh, Andrew and I had been looking for a fruit source for Albarino for uh, a while, and we were lucky enough to find one, a little hobby vineyard just south of Monmouth. Um, they have an acre of it planted, and they have about 0.7 acres of Sangiovese planted as well, and the rest of it is typical Pinot, Pinot Gris, blah, blah, blah. That stuff gets sold to King Estate. Uh, yeah, Andrew and I obviously have been friends for uh, many, many years at this point, uh, drinking wine together. and. Uh, I had, you know, I had talked about doing a project with Seth as well, like a rosé project in the past that just kind of never panned out. Essentially, I didn't have the money to do it before. Um, and Seth's busy with his own project, obviously. Andrew is too, but uh, anyway, Andrew approached me about starting a project. Just a little bit of Albarino, essentially. Maybe we can find some Minthia someday. Uh, just mess around, so he says. Um, so we toured this vineyard uh, with the Albarino. We're like, meet these two awesome guys who are ex-Intel, uh, or sorry, uh, Hewlett-Packard engineers who had spent time working in Barcelona together um, and fell in love with Albarino. One of them is a Chevalier of Burgundy, whatever that title is, I like, will mess it up. But, you know, is very, one of them is very into wine, the other one is loves drinking wine. Um, and uh, they also loved Sangiovese, so they also planted, like, Beyond de Santi clone Sangiovese here. And we're touring it, and uh, they're like, well, we definitely want the Albarino. And they're like, well, would you like the Sangiovese too? And, you know, obviously we're friends with Graham Buonanotte, and we're kind of like, yeah, let's mess with Graham. This sounds awesome. <laughs> also thinking that it's going to help us get some the Albarino fruit, because a lot of people want. Albarino is become, fastly becoming a very hot commodity here in Oregon. Um, so it's definitely a little bit of fisticuffs to get some fruit. Um, so we thought it would we'd ingratiate ourselves by also taking the Sangiovese. So in 2021, long story short, uh, we made uh, um, Albarino, which was uh, at the time kind of like a really ghetto pergola trained system. They were trying to emulate Galith or uh, Rias Baixas a little bit with a fake pergola, but it was a, a nightmare for the workers. It was a nightmare, like the nightmare for the equipment because they'd have to change the height of the equipment. So they trimmed it all back. But that first vintage, the 2021 vintage, was still pergola train. It was really hard to sample because some of the, it was just like such a canopy. The, there was so many different very varying levels of, of ripeness in the fruit. Um, we, and we didn't, it was also a year where everyone was picking all at once because uh, it, was a, it was a mad rush to get grapes in, so it was hard to get crews to pick. So it hung for a couple days longer than we wanted and is a little bit higher in alcohol than we would like. Still, like around 13.5, so not crazy, but we're aiming for like 12.5. Um, so we made Sanjo, we made Albarino that first vintage and uh, very sweet of Seth. He stayed up with us. Uh, you know, we, I was working at Lingua Franca that year, and Andrew has his own project. So any work we had to do for ourselves that year, we'd have to do on our own time, which meant at one or two in the morning. And I still had to get up at seven to go to work. So uh, you know, there were some some long nights there, and 
Seth was still was, that year was spending basically every night at the winery too. So uh, Seth definitely had his hand in helping us out both with Alberno and Sanjo those those evenings. I'll say. Um, so shout out to Seth for his help there. Um, the Sangiovese was uh, ripened so much later than everything else um, that Lingua Franca was, Kim was harassing us like, when are you going to pick? Like, I need to know when I can tell the rental company to come pick up this sorting table that we rented, you know? So the point of the story is they were all out of their cement tanks. They were in, they were in barrel with their red wine. They, they were pretty locked up by the time we've even picked Sangio. So we were able to use one of their conical cement tanks our, in 2021 for our Sangiovese, uh, which basically, in retrospect, we, we made the wine totally different last year in 2022. Uh, but the, because of how late the, the grapes were, uh, the rachis or the, you know, the, the stems were, were fully browned. So we decided to do primarily a whole cluster in this cement tank, and uh, let's just say the wine is a pretty beast. It's a big beast, and it's a serious wine. Uh, we put it all in uh, once-used barrels as well. So, uh, and we over-vintaged it, and we are going to bottle that. Both of those wines, the first, the first two wines, the two twenty-one wines uh, next week. So that's exciting. In twenty twenty-two, well, we'll get to that maybe. Uh, and a great vintage. So in July of 2022, uh, Lingua Franca sold to Constellation. And uh, I will say a beautiful era came to an end in the sense of uh, all of us being under one roof. Alban had already moved on and, you know, Abbott Claim was built. So he, he had already left. But uh, essentially Seth and Andrew and I had to find a new place. Um, and we were sad about that because we love the facility and we love the people that work there. They're still there. They're still doing, still doing great. So it's no hard feelings. It's just life. Um, um, but to go to Alban real quick, um, what an amazing winemaker, what an amazing place. Uh, I should have said it earlier, kind of, I would typically go help him do bottling. So it would work there. Um, for a few weeks every year uh, when they'd be racking or bottling or something like that. And the reason I wanted to bring that up is there's a gentleman named David Martinez who works there. Um, no, but David Martinez, uh, I wanted to bring him up because, uh, you know, this whole time I'm trying to learn about wine. And it, it's like cooking, you know, you can ask someone why they do something and the answer is very complicated and hard to describe and very situational. All of winemaking is very situational. There's no two ways to do it. You can't do the same thing uh, every time. You have to do something different. And that's not because uh, we want to be different, but because the product we get forces us to do different things. And uh, David was, was and is one of the best communicators of how and why you do stuff in a cellar. So I very, and that's because, I mean, I don't know how old David is now. He's like in his mid twenties and he's literally done something like 20 harvests or something. Um, he's done three a year for a 
number of years. He grew up in a family uh, here in Oregon. His father run, ran or run, I don't, still runs, I'm not sure, uh, basically a, a vineyard management company. So very much grew up in wine and from an early age was working harvests and then would do one here, go to Australia, go to Tasmania, come back here, you know, rinse and repeat. Worked in the Rhone Valley, worked in France, all over. Super knowledgeable guy. Him and Alban together, you, it's like a perfect combination. They make incredible wine. Anyway, back to end of an era here at Lingua Franca, um, 2022. Um, we had to move out. Andrew and I moved into Archer Vineyard, where he currently makes uh, the wines for Audant. Um, he makes wines under a label called the Missoula Flood for a, a wonderful gentleman named Matthias, who is, uh, I should name this other room Matthias's room because he's definitely my, uh, yeah, an honored guest, uh, uh, as well as the Sacred Shores wines. Seth obviously moved on to Sequitur, um, to a beautiful new space there, and it continues his work there. Um, but uh, maybe I should, maybe, talk about Matthias a, a little bit. He's, he's a, a great guy and uh, someone that Andrew worked with, uh, like one of his first wine jobs down in central, on the Central Coast. Um, Matthias started a project here uh, focusing on sparkling wines made from the Columbia River Gorge. Uh, I want to say in 2018, but it could have been 2019. He made a couple of vintages at Lingua Franca there as well as uh, now making them at Archer. So yeah, uh, Matthias and Andrew, uh, Make some wine, uh, make some sparkling wine that will just start being released here in the fall. And I believe that I'm gonna be lucky enough to represent those wines at Lone Wolf as well. So I'm excited to uh, work with uh, some more of my friends in the, in the wine world. Um, um, I guess Matthias and talking about him living in this room is a good way of saying, uh, throughout the time I've owned this house, uh, um, which is since 2015, I can't, count on uh, hundred, hundreds of people have been here, stayed here, eaten here from all over the world, which is a, a huge sense of pride for me to uh, be able to be such a uh, gathering place for the wine community at large. Um, and uh, the ideas and the wines, the philosophies shared here, I feel like do make a difference in uh, the community here. Mm -hmm. um, so Matthias is part of that, and uh, they so they finished their their wines with Ra with Radiant. Um, and uh, shout out to my friend Lee Beck, who does a lot of the work there, um, uh, who is also one of the acolytes of Antica Terra, and uh, is someone who can fix anything. Uh, and he's married to Morgan Beck, who is the uh, winemaker at Johan, um, who I should have mentioned them earlier. Johan's an amazing biodynamic estate that I represented while I, at my, when I was with PDX Wine uh, and a place that uh, I went to during the eclipse. So have some, some very uh, strong memories of times at Johan with Morgan. Uh, anyway, Liebeck is doing some amazing things at Radiant and they're doing, uh, making sparkling wine is a whole can of worms in and of itself. Uh, the technical knowledge, the the different styles, the different inputs that you can do are so much beyond uh, making still wine. Uh, it's uh, mind-boggling, and I'm not even thinking of my current 
juncture in my life that I'm even going to try to wrap my mind around making like what that whole thing is. I mean, I know kind of, I know you know the method champenoise and whatever, but uh, bars of pressure and dosage, like good on you. Um, I'll drink it. Um, so after 2021 and making my first wines, uh, I should say lighting money on fire uh, at Lingua Franca, I started working for a company here in Portland, uh, just kind of trying to fill time originally, but it turned into more at Portland Wine Storage with uh, two, I'll say th uh, three amazing people, Tom, Joe, and Tommy. Um, Joe and Tom are the original, uh, I'll say, founders of the business. Uh, Tommy is, I think, came on later, but is uh, you know a cornerstone of the company. And since I have stopped working there, uh, they've hired a number of people and have uh, Hart Davis Hart uh, in the building, uh, as along with uh, distributors like myself, Julian Sinclair, Chasse Selections, uh, a laundry list of. Uh, of awesome clients downstairs in the private seller kind of category, including someone I mentioned, uh, uh, you know, Bonnie and Tom have uh, lockers there. Uh, Michael Wheeler has a locker there. Michael Alberti has a locker there. I could keep going on and on. Like, uh, you know, you inter just interviewed uh, Mylon Meyer there. Uh, it, the, that whole place is, uh, you know, ripe to just post up shop in that uh, lounge and interview people that come in and out of it and you'll be surprised what you hear. Um, um, so my time at Portland Wine Storage um, was uh, very important and influential, though it was short. Um, I basically started working there because of Seth. I mean, this is a, Seth is introduced me to a lot of uh, opportunities, this being one of them. Um, and I kind of was just like, Joe was like, hey, you want to like start inventorying some sellers for us? And it needed someone with the, some knowledge of what they're handling and not just like knew what to look for on a label. Uh, I was like to think of myself as a valuable asset for him as far as my background. Um, so started just kind of like picking up hours when I wanted to go in and like he'd show me a room and be like, inventory this or and slowly that grew to be a little bit more of a position or just him needing more. So I'd, then I, you know, they have a lot of wine that they've purchased because, you know, they, they've had so many different importers, distributors in their uh, rent space from them. They've bought wine from them to offer to their wine clubs. So like I'd start doing, uh, you know, on like email sales to their mailing list. And then I started uh, getting put on like a move jobs, which is what Tommy does. So he, he runs a company through Portland Wine Company called Appalachian Wine Transportation, or wine, Appalachian is just for short, I'll say, uh, which is really one of, uh, you'd be surprised how few companies there are licensed uh, in the United States to do such work and have the infrastructure and basically the, the landing zone, the place to put wine once it's transported, like a, a in-between between one house to another, so to speak, as an example. Um, so got to be start getting put on like really cool kind of wine move jobs where I'd travel like sometimes in a sprinter, sometimes in a box truck, going to someone's private collection, typically a private collection, and boxing up their wine for because they're going to move across the country. So I'd go to some amazingly expensive homes and some modest homes 
sometimes the amazingly expensive home had a wine collection that, in my opinion, was complete garbage. And sometimes the house that, you know, was lesser than mine, you know, had a, well, you're sitting on a gold mine. So you never know you're going to, never knew what you're going to uh, walk into. Um, and I'm not going to, you know, hurt too, I'm not going to go into the disappointment I had in, uh, seeing a lot of people's collections where you're like, man, you've put a lot of thought and effort and especially money into this, but these aren't wines that I'd want to drink or aren't going to appreciate. Um, so do your homework, uh, buy good wine, um, but drink what you like. Um, anyway, I got to go on some really cool trips there. I, I got flown to Chicago, for example, to do a wine move there. Uh, I'd never been to Chicago before and uh, had like an, um, an amazing time. It's an amazing city. Obviously, I mentioned being into architecture earlier. It's one of the greatest places, if not the greatest place in the United States for architecture. Uh, the, the art museum there is uh, world-class world as an understatement. Um, and of just a fascinating city in terms of honestly food and wine in America as far as uh, you know the cattle industry and prohibition XYZ uh, you could do a whole thing on Chicago uh, but I have a friend there named Mariah who works for Hart Davis Hart uh, so met up with her she's been great in my wine career uh, um, introducing me to, to new things and opportunities as well um, but another another very a uh, valuable thing that I was exposed to at Portland Wine Storage was Bordeaux. It's a region that I have never been fast, never you know been really exposed to. It's not that I'm not fascinated by it, but it's just it's it's a huge uh, category in and of itself within the wine world. Uh, and it was the first time that I was having to handle a lot of labels that I knew were famous, but was unfamiliar with so uh, it was a way for me to really educate myself on that region I still know nothing but I now feel like you know I know a little bit I can understand right and left bank a little bit better so to speak um, so just one of the the many uh, facets uh, of the job at Portland wine storage that was uh, opening new doors for me and uh, making new connections uh, private clients stuff like that um, and uh, Joe and Tom are amazing people that are super awesome and kind and generous again and would be great, I mean, great interviews for sure. Um, I mean, they were doing that way before I think Willamette Wine Storage or any other facility was uh, like that. And uh, they've grown their business a lot and uh, into a really impressive multi-pronged business, which is cool. Um, uh, so, I'm going to bring you up to date now, and on hour three or whatever we're at, uh, with uh, what I do now, which is uh, I work for a company called Lone Wolf, um, and the way that happened is Lone Wolf uh, warehouses, uh, we warehouse our wine in Portland Wine Storage. Uh, I've been friends with the, the owner of the company, Tim Davey, for, I don't know, a decade now. Uh, he used to be a, he started out his wine he, he's a long time, uh, I'll say, restaurateur and uh, bar spirit person who uh, was always interested in wine, but really just became so much of an obsession for him that he kind of got out of that successful area of his life to start working at a company at the time it was called Corridor 5. And uh, 
to even go further back in time to talk about uh, the main part of our the Lone Wolf catalog, which is a company called Becky Wasserman Selections. Um, uh, uh, when I started at PDX Wine, we represented Becky Wasserman Selections. Sadly, we only, for whatever reason, I'm not going to go into this. Uh, I think it was short-sighted. We're only really working with the Sun and Bees estate. Uh, it's the what the producer that Michael was really into, and a lot of the at, at that time, you know, a lot of the wines we already had representation of these regions. So like it, there was too much overlap. Long story short, Wasserman went to Corridor Five, and uh, where Tim started working with the wines. Uh, Tim's a brilliant person, great orator, great memory, great palate, um, uh, did great things for uh, the Wasserman catalog here in Oregon when he was, was working with them through Corridor 5, so much so that uh, he became an actual, an actual employee of Becky Wasserman and uh, is the, pretty much the only person in the United States that uh, is employed by Becky Wasserman. Um, he also, at his time at Corridor 5, uh, was uh, introduced, or I guess he, I should say, he introduced himself to the wines of Central Europe, uh, specifically from an importer at the time called the Blue Danube, uh, which uh, represented mainly Hungarian wine, but Roma Romania, Slovakia, Austria, Croatia, um, and Serbia, uh, I think. There's, yeah, Serbia. Um, so uh, basically, he left Corridor 5, but still had a job with Wasserman. Uh, and they are an amazing company, very open-minded. And uh, the person who owned Blue Danube retired. And two people, two of its employees bought it and created, carried it on, changed the name to Danch and Granger, and approached Tim about representing the wines up here. Uh, Tim agreed, and uh, eventually the the uh, solution was for him to start his own company, selling the Danchen Granger portfolio here in Oregon, while still working for Wasserman, and essentially representing the wines. But the wines were coming through a company called A and W Northwest here at the time. Um, so Tim created the, the company called Lone Wolf to do the Central European catalog. Um, after a a time that I'm not going to go into. Uh, over time, I should say, uh, the Wasserman catalog uh, came to Lone Wolf as well as a company called Petit Monde, um, which is where the wines are now with us and with Petit Monde. Um, real briefly, Wasserman, uh, you could do a whole, you know, week long. Uh, podcast just on Becky Wasserman and what she's done, but uh, briefly, you know. Uh, one I actually interviewed her. Incredible. Go see the interview. Listen to the interview. I mean, a, a legend in the in not only the wine world, but uh, an ambassador for not only America and Burgundy, but Burgundy in America. And uh, I can't think of a greater catalog to represent. Uh, this is why I do what I do with Tim. Uh, it's very important for me to I can't sell a product I'm not excited about. I can't sell a product I'm not interested in. I'm not that type of salesman. Some people are, and I'm. It's it's an amazing thing to just be able to sell, to be in that mindset to just sell stuff. I need the the passion behind me, and uh, 
which is what drew me to Lone Wolf and the Wasserman catalog. Um, in my mind, some of the greatest estates uh, from France. And it's very exciting to see what they're doing as we expand into Germany and uh, Italy. Um, uh, it, the sky's the limit in my mind, and I can't wait to see what's next. And that we're adding new producers to the catalog uh, constantly. Um, so not only uh, do I get to learn and represent some of the most iconic people in some of the most iconic regions, but uh, more and more uh, producers to learn learn about in the future. Um, so that's why I came to Lone Wolf. However, uh, I'd say a, a parallel story here to the Grease story about Dancing Granger. Um, wines I've always loved to drink but didn't know much about. And uh, since working for Lone Wolf and uh, meeting Eric and traveling to Hungary only a couple months ago, um, have a really newfound um, appreciation for the region and the wines made there. Um, so I'll, I'll briefly touch on going to Hungary, uh, definitely a place I'd never thought I would travel to, even, you know, in knowing I like to travel and wine, I wasn't on my radar that I'd get there someday. So it was very much a trip of discovery. I had only, I've only, I've only been working with Tim since, uh, about a year now. I think at the end of this month is a, a year or this month is a year working with him. So uh, a relatively short amount of time to grasp a pretty large catalog of wines that are from a pretty starkly different culture that I'm used to. Um, so uh, yes, Tim and I spent three weeks in Hungary, Romania, Slovakia, and Austria uh, at the end of April and the beginning of May of this year. Um, we went there with Eric and uh, the Dancing Granger crew, uh, and it was a amazing trip. I have never been to uh, countries that had previously been communist at one point. Uh, it's a, definitely a different feel for Europe, and um, uh, like Greece, you know, it, you're not in polished Europe. Even though it's like right across, the, it's like Vienna is like an hour away. It's like you know, this is a very humble place but of supreme beauty, for sure. Um, the history of Hungary is fascinating, and you could go on and on about that. You know, The Danube is such a powerful river as far as commerce goes, uh, historically, that everyone wanted to rule it, and everyone has. So talk about a mix of cultures there. You, you can't get much better than that. Um, the food is, is uh, in, amazing. Uh, I, everyone of my friends will laugh now if they they're not going to listen to this, but if they did, they'd laugh when I say I love pork, I love pigs. Uh, I mean, they're great animals, but what I mean is I love eating pork. And uh, hung Hungary is known for a breed of pig called Mangalisa, which is considered the Wagyu of pork. And uh, there are some people here in America that have some of these animals, and I hopefully more and more people breed them because it's an amazing product and uh, was definitely a, a highlight of the trip. Of beyond the producers that I got to go see. I could really go into the producers one by one, but I'll try not to do that because we're already so long on time. Um, but it was very interesting to go to Romania. Just so everyone knows, you need an international driver's license to drive into Romania. They're not part of the Schengen Agreement. No one on the trip actually knew this at the time. So we got to the border and were met by an unhappy uh, guardsman who didn't let us 
drive. <laughs> so the producer we were going to go visit had to hire two taxi taxis to come to the border and drive our cars across the border into Romania, which was a, an amazing experience. Uh, I could go on and on about that, but some amazing wines uh, from a producer called Edgar Brutler, who you'll be seeing more and more of in the Portland market. Um, great wines. Um, and then went to Tokai, which is a whole education in and of itself. Uh, it, it's, you know, the, the classifications in this region are predate Bordeaux, so pretty much the oldest wine region on earth. Um, I was unaware of kind of the diversity of terroir there, and specifically, I mean, like the different villages. You know, you kind of just think of it as one big place, but it's, it's really not. It's more like the Loire in the sense that each village and area kind of has its own identity to some case. Um, we did stay at uh, a, producer's, uh, a producer named Barta, Domain Barta. Uh, uh, his, I guess I'll say his, his auberge, which uh, Carolee Barta is uh, an ex exorbitantly wealthy industrialist person in Hungary. Um, and I, it, he's hard to even Google. It's hard to find information about him. Some, somehow, in large-scale construction, multi-international construction, made a fortune, and uh, decided uh, he wanted to preserve uh, some historic part, some historic parts of Hungarian culture, uh, and part of that being Tokai. So he purchased basically the Prince of Transylvania's. Uh, Chateau in Mod, the village of Mod, which is one of the uh, the most uh, you know you could think of it as like the von Romane of Tokai, maybe uh, some of the greatest parcels are in Mod. So we purchased this 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 chateau in Mod and like uh, refurbished it, and you can stay there. Uh, John House recently just went there um, and stayed there. It's basically like. You know, Tim and I each had like a wing of this chateau that was like bigger than my house. You know, it was like laughable. You're like, why do I have five rooms? <laughs> um, uh, he also, what, what he also did he, is he revitalized a vineyard called uh, Ori Karai, which it was, uh, means like King's Vineyard. So a very historic parcel that had been retaken by Forrest. He painstakingly over years and years Defor like removed the forest and re-terraced the the proper the vineyard, and replanted it. And uh, I think the the genius of him, which I might equate to uh, Beck at from Abbot Claim, someone who is willing. I, I picture in the rest of their life is very controlling over their business, but in this in this project knows that they don't know the best way to do things. So has really entrusted it uh, with a different producer. We represent Bodrog Bohumier um, uh, with the vineyard management, who's really one of the premier organic biodynamic uh, vineyard consultants of the region, as well as a very talented winemaker to make the wines. So uh, appreciate his hands-off approach and let the people, you know, it's important. I mean, you could say that about Marty at Flanor too, knowing let, letting Grant have the reins. Um, so he was a great guy, and uh, we did the tasting with him, and uh, we, uh, it's over, and Tim and I are the only ones staying in this uh, 
chateau and we're like oh, man is there a, like a pub we'd love to get like a beer after dinner you know just go to a bar unwind get a beer and he's like oh sure i'll go with you there's only one down the street so here we are there's like one pub that's like one room with like a couple like lottery machines and like a tiny tv playing soccer and like a few people in track suits at this tiny bar drinking beer and in two american dudes walk with like kind of literally like the richest person in Hungary and they're just like okay <laughs> so like just like in this like no name little place like drinking beer with Carolee Barta uh, was awesome and then we go back to the chateau and they had like changed the locks to his like quarters or whatever so like Tim and I are like in one of our mini rooms in this chateau like kind of like like man that was a crazy experience right then we hear this noise and like Carolee comes back and like he's like I got locked out like let's drink some of the, like with this bottle of Azu and like drink an Azu with him after all of this in this room. And he's like, I'm going to stay in here with you guys. So like, you know, staying with him is this just one of many stories I could tell about the trip to Hungary. It was an amazing experience uh, to, to see such a long, uh, a long list of places and producers. Uh, Tim and I drove, I think it was something like 1600 miles in the course of three weeks on that trip. Um, we also went to Austria and visited a friend of mine named Stefan, who has an amazing uh, project there called Kolfolk. He actually worked at Lingua Franca in 2016, which is how we knew him or how I know him. I hadn't seen him since, and he opened up, uh, welcomed us with open arms and cooked us an amazing dinner. And we definitely drank a lot that evening. That was towards the end of the trip. Um, uh, but uh, it's just another experience of going to a foreign place and trying new foods and new cult and experiencing new culture, which is really what is the most important part for me. Uh, uh, again, that is important for me at Lone Wolf as well. Uh, it's uh, something that Tim very much believes in, which is a, you know, one of the reasons why I love working for him. Uh, you know, it's, it's important. He believes in it too. So like we, it's a, we're going to take a trip every year and we're going to, I'm going to go back to Burgundy with Wasserman and get to, see it in another round and see all these amazing producers that I represent and that to me that's more valuable than any paycheck you know I could get um, so yeah um, I guess one other thing I'll say is I uh, have been dating a lovely lady named Kate who works at Antica Terra and that's important in this conversation because uh, she's going through the court of masters and just advanced or passed her advanced exam. So that's been super interesting for me um, for a number of reasons, but I'm specifically talking about helping her study for that test is another example of me realizing I don't know anything. <laughs> Those note cards, I'm just like, what is this? Like, <laughs> I've never heard of, like, I don't even, not only do I not know what this is, but more importantly, who is going to ask you this question at a table at a restaurant? Uh, but it's been super enlightening for me to, uh, again, keep being reminded how much I still have to learn. And she's helped me with that. And then um, basically I mentioned uh, bottling our 2021 vintage for our Andernized project, which I'm just, we, you know, we've been trying to name this thing for two years and we uh, basically can't agree on a name. It's not that like we can't agree. It's just like, we can't think of a name. Um, we've tried, you know, you know, in every way possible <laughs> with the help of, uh, you know, extracurricular, you know, substances even, and it just doesn't work. Um, 
so it, originally we started the company with an LLC uh, name of Sacred Shore Wine, which is like r roughly what Ribera Sacra translates to if you Google it. Um, and uh, I think we're pretty much uh, succumbed to that being the name, which we, we like. Uh, it's just we've always felt like something else would hit us. But uh, anyway, long story short, it's really the last time I'm going to say that. Um, uh, we're bottling our first vintages uh, next week. I mentioned the 221 vintage wines that we'll be bottling. We will also be bottling two wines from 2022, one of which will be a shorter maceration uh, Sangiovese red wine, which is basically a de-stemmed five, six day partial carbonic maceration, like easy going red wine. We also made a rosé from Sangiovese in 2022 that uh, is very much I don't know if you're familiar with Antica Terra Rosé or Audeant Rosé, but um, some maceration, barrel fermentation, definitely a, a style of rosé that Andrew is very much in love with and is very intriguing. Um, so we're bottling those four wines, so three Sangioveses. Eat your heart out, Graham, and uh, the 2021 Albarino. However, last year we also made uh, some Chenin Blanc from Three Mile Vineyard which is a very exciting project in the Columbia River Gorge. I think you've interviewed the people that are behind that. Uh, it's basically part of the Mitchell company. Um, they have an awesome guy named Joe Cushman out there kind of leading the viticulture side. And uh, it's only in, I believe, it's basically third leaf as far as producing fruit. Uh, and it's, a, it's very exciting to see what will happen there because there are so many unique varieties planted there. And they continue to plant more. Um, and it's a beautiful site. It's right at the end of the basically the the soil line of when it turns into like really Washington desert. It's like the last piece of Columbia Gorge, uh, and you kind of look out on that, and you have all this expo uh, you're exposed to high elevation. Um, I could talk about my friend Boyd, who uh, who has an awesome uh, label called uh, Redolent Wine, um, uh, Redolent Wines. Uh, he's into He's making wine from there as well. I could go down the list. There's people like John House making wine from there. There's Brienne Day makes wine from there. There's an awesome new producer, uh, Mendivia. I think I'm getting that right. Colin, Colin is making the wine from there. Uh, Groschau is a, a huge uh, buyer of fruit from there. Uh, on and on. You know, I don't know who, all the contracts. I just know some people. But uh, a lot of people are working with the fruit, and it's exciting to see what will happen with that project. Um, and I mention that because uh, we're going to be working with Menthia, our first Menthia from that property uh, this year, which we're very excited about. Um, so really kind of, you know, it, originally we were just going to make Galician varieties and we didn't want to like muddy the waters. And uh, then Chenin Blanc and, and Sangiovese, blah, blah, blah. It's more of a wide reaching project than just one, one region. Um, uh, we also have a property in the Dalles, not sorry, sorry, not the Dalles, a property in Dallas, uh, which is uh, an awesome up and coming vineyard that is was just been planted in the last couple of years, so it's not producing yet. Um, but uh, I'm going to pull a Jeff Veer here and it's redacted, uh, redact this vineyard name. Um, but 
they have planted an acre of Amenthia and Albarino forest as well. And it's farmed by Jessica Cortell, who has an amazing company, which I'm sure you've interviewed her. Um, and the rest of the fruit will end up going to Antigua Terra, I think. I'm not sure. Uh, the Pinot Noir and the Chardonnay, I mean. But uh, it's an amazing site. It's amazingly farmed. The owners of the property are incredibly thoughtful and professional. And uh, in my mind, will be the benchmark uh, for the varieties, for the grapes, you know, Andernoy might fuck it up, but at least they were grown as better than any other Albarino or Menthia in the valley so far. So we're super excited about that when that happens and uh, um, can't wait for that. Um, but basically, uh, moving forward, you know, looking forward to uh, getting to know the Wasserman catalog more. Uh, meeting those people, producers uh, in person for the first time. Um, being in France with the company for the first time is very exciting and hopefully I'll get to do that in the spring of next year. Um, but uh, And uh, more importantly with Wasserman, also like I said, very excited about Italy and, and Germany. Um, but in the meantime, I just love doing what I do here, which is uh, I love to cook. I love to host people. You can stay in my extra room if you want. You know, we'll have a party and we'll talk about wine. Um, I do it, more, you know, more often. You know, I like to say I run an auberge. Uh, you know, I, I can't tell you how many loads of dishes I do, how often I have to mop my floor, clean my bathroom, just to keep it presentable for all the people that come over here. It's a labor of love, don't get me wrong. Uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, but, you know, as we all get older, I'm going to turn 40 in November. Uh, my time for that is a little, my time for that is more occupied with Sacred Shores. I'm trying to be a better wine rep every day with Lone Wolf. So, uh, it's not quite as much of a party as it used to be here, but, uh, still have, uh, host an amazing laundry list of winemakers, wine professionals, uh, and just friends here all the time. And, uh, it brings me more joy than I could ever imagine. Um, and uh, also here at this uh, beautiful property in Northeast Portland, I like to call it the Rose City Terroir. Uh, I didn't make wine from here last year. Uh, if the camera wasn't on a tripod, you could spin around and I fermented it in that Coleman cooler right there, which was a perfect fermentation device for that amount of fruit. It has a spout, you can open it, the juice comes out, it has a lid, it is, uh, you know, it retains heat because it's a cooler. It's like a perfect little method. Uh, so I made, uh, with a friend of mine, David, who runs a wine shop here in town called Cruin Domain, which is new, and he's an awesome person. He, him and Kate are the only two people from this entire region to pass the advanced exam. Uh, here this last uh, about a month ago. Um, he has a, a few vines in his yard, so we pulled our fruit together and, uh, you know, I forget what he calls it, but a Rose City wine, which is the neighborhood I'm in here, obviously. Um, we made six Magnums and two 750s last year, and this year I'm aiming for quite a bit more after this huge success I had last year, which actually turned out a lot better than I thought. I mean, 
the way that I don't like, I don't shoot shoot thin or like, you know, all these wines have way, are way overcropped. So getting to ripeness is a difficulty, let alone it's not quite as warm here as the valley. So, uh, you know, I made about a 10 and a half percent wine, but you know, it's very Jura-esque. Uh, people like it. I'm, I'm hopeful for the future there. Um, but to really briefly about the vines, uh, I should have mentioned that earlier. Uh, they're basically from Nate Reddy, who I mentioned before. Um, uh, he was giving, he, he was planting some very interesting varieties at his Hayu property and had some extra sticks essentially. So I basically planted, they're not, they're not on rootstock, they're just uh, sticks. And I have uh, Cab Franc, Menth, or, sorry, Cab Franc, Nebbiolo, Rubola Giala, Ferment, Nanta, Hungary, um, uh, Alberino, not Alberino, sorry, Aligote, which is from a friend of mine, Jess Miller, Little Crow Vineyard, that's a, a whole nother producer I haven't mentioned yet. I have one awesome uh, uh, Aligote vine from her, and then I have some Arborio, which really struggles. Um, uh, one thing I will say about this house, which I needed to talk to a little bit, talk about a little bit more, was uh, I mentioned my friend Jeremy, who worked with Kurt at Davenport. Uh, he lived here for six years. That's the longest I've ever lived with someone. Uh, he moved out uh, a little over, well, a year and a half ago now, almost two years ago, actually. Um, moved in with his girlfriend, but uh, was an integral part of this place being that gathering place. and. Uh, very important part of the conversation as well, and I recommend that you um, uh, interview him in the future. And uh, lastly, I guess uh, I, this year I've been very excited for my trip in Hungary to plant so many uh, Hungarian pepper plants, which I got from the farmer's market. There's a great little, I forget the name of the farm, but they have a number of cultivars of Hungarian pepper plants that I'm excited about. And my cat Stinker is the vineyard manager or the pepper manager for that. And uh, maybe you've seen him or he probably took a picture of him, but a very integral part of this house. Why? Because he rules this house. This is his house. It's his domain. We just live in it. And uh, he's a great host for all my friends. So for my third question, <laughs> what led you to your role wine? No, I'm just kidding. That's uh, um, okay. That's a lot. It's a heck of a story. I win, Eric Hamaker. Uh, yeah, I think. Yeah, we're over three hours now. Even with some editing, we're still. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have a, I have a couple things I like to talk about. Yeah. I think you covered everything really well. There's not a whole lot I'm gonna go back to. I did take a couple notes. I think I have a little, do a little rapid fire at the end where we catch up on okay. a couple things. But I'm curious, like. Coming into wine the way you did, obviously, wine as culture is kind of an important thing to you, the idea mm -hmm. of, of that. So tell me about how you've, your perception of like wine, of culture has changed through wine, and what is Oregon's impact on that? Well, the first part of the question, and you're going to have to remind me of the second part because I'm sure. going to lose myself. Um, wine and culture, what, why is that important to me? Or how has your perception changed? How has it changed? Um, it obviously has changed, but I guess I will start by saying I was lucky to be introduced at a young age to a lot of different cultures. So it's with my travels with my parents. Um, so it's something that I've always been aware of and I've been open to and 
understood that there are so many different ways of people have and cultures have of doing things out in the world. But at the same time, you know, every trip I go on, you're going to learn something new and maybe I'll equate it to cooking, you know. I, that's one of my favorite things about traveling and learning about a new culture. It's like, what's your dish? Like, how do you work with this onion or this piece of meat or something? And uh, just to always being flexible and malleable in your, uh, what you know and being able to absorb what other cultures have. And I guess that's maybe the most valuable part is just the flexing that muscle that is your sponge to be able to absorb what you're experiencing when you're in a different place is really important. And it's hard these days uh, because we all have phone cameras on our phone. You know, in high school, I was really into uh, photography, um, like very into photography. And um, I got really frustrated because I started living my whole life through a lens of a camera and not experiencing things. So um, really uh, in the big, I kind of like, threw away my camera, you know, metaphorically speaking. And uh, since having an awesome camera and a phone that I carry around all the time, it's come back to haunt me. You know, I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna buy a nice camera and be on a camera again, I don't think, because this is so good. Uh, but uh, I think that you can tell from following me, you know, it sounds stupid, following me on Instagram, but uh, I take pride in taking pictures of places I've been and representing the places I've been, hopefully in a nice mm -hmm. picture and can tell that, that, that tells a story for me. Cause I'm, uh, even though I've just talked for over three hours, I'm not an orator as in the sense of like, like, a, like if I were to give a lecture on an actual topic and not just talk about myself, I'd really struggle to do it. I actually had to do this at, at Liner and Elson, a wine shop that I've sold wine to for, uh, 10 years now and it's a great place in Northwest. Uh, I did a Benjamin LaRue uh, tasting uh, on Wednesday and typically Tim does it and if you think I can talk, man, Tim is like on another level. Like uh, I don't think I got a, you know, more than a few pages of dialogue in and all that time in a car with him in Hungary. <laughs> and it's not a problem. It's, he has so much to say and he's such an interesting philosophy on so many different things. Um, anyway, usually he would do it um, but I had to do it and uh, it was, you know, a little bit, uh, I had a little bit of anxiety doing that, speaking in public. So it's really nice to be here with just you, where it's very comfortable in my own setting, which is kind of why, one of the reasons why I told you to come up here, one, to see kind of a very, what I think is an important place in the wine industry. Is, that sounds pretentious of me to say that about my own house, but I think that's true. Um, Tell me about the now that you have this this kind of the view of wine from the, the lens you do of the kind of the worldly perspective tell me about tell me about Oregon's place in that I think it's fascinating to live in a region that specializes in varieties that are so famous and have such a historical context to them and me working with a company that represents those wines from France and working here in this uh, area, it, it's amazing to see where the philosophies inter uh, collide. Um, I think that we have still a lot to learn from Burgundy as far as Pinot Noir and Chardonnay go. But I think that they have stuff to learn from us as well. Um, 
if I were to channel maybe something Maggie would have said is, you know, we have the luxury of not, not Maggie, channel of what a lot of people would say in the wine business, but specifically Maggie would say something about blending. We're able to blend fruit here, whereas in Burgundy, they're really kind of, you know, you keep your Premier Cruise separate and blah, blah, blah. But who knows, you know, maybe if you blended the Premier Cruise together, it'd be a better wine, but that's like so forbidden. It's too outside the box, whereas we can do stuff like that here. Uh, we can do whatever we want here. It's the wild, wild west. Um, so that's exciting to be able to kind of not be shackled by specific uh, historical winemaking norms here. Um, and I think that people in Europe are envious of that. Um, uh, it's really hard to, you know, you, that, that designation on the label to you know, for you to go to a Vin de France to do something really outside the box is like a real gamble monetarily for, for these people. Um, so they're envious that we're able to take so many chances um, here. And uh, from our side, um, yeah, obviously there's a, a tons of things to learn from anywhere, you know, not just France about, you need to look all over the world to, to, to gain knowledge. Everyone has different philosophies and they're all right. Uh, every terroir is different. I mean, there are people making amazing wine in, you know, Mexico, South America, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, uh, the middle, like, you know, Israel, like there's so many like weird places that you could find people really working hard to make a great product. Um, one thing that I think is uh, exciting about Oregon is uh, the ability to uh, uh, find to grow more than just Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. I, obviously, I'm sure a number of people have talked about that on, in this series. It's not that we shouldn't be growing Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. They're amazing. They should, they're, they're amazing wines that we produce here. They're world class. Um, but it's not to say that this isn't obviously a still an infant. This wine region is in its infancy. And uh, there will, we'll, as time goes on, we'll learn more and more. And we'll realize that more and more varieties should be planted here and fine-tune what that means um, and uh, the best ways of pulling out uh, the expression of this terroir. Um, let's talk about some of the topics that came up earlier and maybe give a, give a, give a short answer to kind of follow up on. A word you use that we don't, get, we don't use a lot or hear a lot is avant-garde for kind of some of the Oregon wines that you're attracted to and some of the Oregon winemakers you're attracted to. Tell me what that means to you and, and what, what those people have done to the culture or the climate of Oregon wine. First, I'll reply to that and, that, uh, and by saying, you know, I've been going back to like my PDX days representing people like, uh, I, mean, I mean, especially Chad Stock. I mean, can you get more uh, outside the box than what he did with his original uh, numbered series, which is, uh, I still have some that I hope to drink with him someday, uh, some of his uh, first children, so to speak. Um, I, th I mean, I just think it's important to experiment in general. Uh, to It goes back to, you know, meet my friends from uh, Alaska at Oregon State teaching me that I don't don't assume that you're doing something the right way. Assume the opposite. Assume you're doing something wrong. That's where you start. And that way, you'll come up with the best solution. If you assume you're right to begin with, you're going to do that, and it's probably not the best solution. So. 
I think when, when I probably said that, I was using a big, this is again, I'm not an English major, it's not my thing, I was using the term wrong in my mind. So what I maybe meant by that, uh, when I brought it up previously was, people that are kind of producer, producers that are I happen to be friends with, that are really widely considered these days as being some of the best in the in the valley as far as the specific style of wine they're trying to make. Um, I'm not here to judge one way or the other if it's better or worse. You know, I definitely have my preferences. I like reduction in Chardonnay. Some people hate it. I mean, even for example, at Lingua Franca, Thomas loves Chardonnay, but or sorry, reduction, but Kim doesn't. Um, so, you know, it, it's totally stylistic, personal preference. One's not right, one's not wrong. Uh, I represent producers in Burgundy that, you know, from all different types of styles. Um, I, I just, I, I feel very blessed. And what I might have meant by that is uh, to be friends with such successful people. Um, as far as not only their wines, but their careers and what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, not that, I mean, there's so many people that, that uh, are great and I don't know of, and I can't wait to meet you out, whoever you are out there. For example, I mean, like I said, we represent Chris at Liska here at Lone Wolf. I mean, Lone Wolf represents Chris uh, Liska. We represent Andy from the Marini, who's an eccentric fellow. And I mean, talk about polar opposite wines from someone like Antica Terra or Lingua Franca or any of these other people. Andy's making totally, you know, pretty much no sulfur wines that are uh, from a totally as far north as you can get picked as early as you can get, making totally a different, totally different style of wine. But has had amazing success at it and has built an incredible brand. Um, that's super awesome. You want to talk about experimenting? Let's talk about Jeff Veer again. You know, I mentioned Chad being an experimenter. I mean, Chad and Jeff, for the longest of times, have been the be have been best friends. They both made their wine at David Hill, or Chad, or sorry, uh, Jeff made his wine at David Hill. Uh, up until this year, he's uh, had to move facilities. But talk about experimenting. Jeff Veer has something like 25 different wines right now. Some of them are like blends of varieties that I struggle to pronounce from places like, yeah, I've, okay, uh, all the way to something like uh, the original Cory vines at David Hill, the Cory Simeon, like w one of, one of, if not the most, I'm going to get in trouble here, one of, if not the most uh, historical bottles of wine you could possibly produce in Oregon. Uh, and all of that is about thinking outside the box and being avant-garde. I represent a, a guy uh, named Brian at Human Cellars that we just picked up, making some really interesting wine. He's doing great work teaching at Chemeketa Community College uh, as well. Um, so yeah, those are the four local producers that I happen to represent now doing avant-garde things. But uh, there's a, a whole laundry list. I mentioned uh, Jess Miller, who gave me my uh, Aligote vine. I could, you know, talk about avant-garde. Talk to Junichi. This guy's like making his own soy sauce next to his, uh, next to his wines and stuff. I mean, that's maybe he's not, but you get the point. Like fermenting X, Y, and Z. Not soy sauce doesn't ferment. Maybe it does. I don't know. I'm talking out my ass now. Uh, there's a whole laundry list of avant-garde people uh, doing interesting things in the valley, and even at, at historic estates, you have people starting to change their philosophy um, because of the landscape that some of these people have created, I feel like. Um, 
the urban wine scene here in Portland is is awesome. Uh, that's a huge incubator, they a division wine company who I used to represent. Uh, their facility used to house a number of uh, uh, producers that would be in that avant-garde realm. Um, all have kind of, some have graduated and moved out and started their own wineries. Some still make wine there. Um, uh, pretty incredible. You'd mentioned the, earlier the Davenport restaurant, obviously an important place to you and mentioned wanting to come back to it. I want to make sure you covered everything you wanted to cover with Davenport. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I, I didn't actually. <laughs> it's uh, Obviously, I, I mentioned I love to cook and stuff. That's that's a, a fun place for me to go pick up a shift. Sometimes I uh, recently, you know, in the last year or two, uh, well, the, the Kevin is a very particular person. He only works with one there's only one other chef in the kitchen ever, uh, at a time, I mean. Um, so when that person needs a break or is sick or something, uh, I feel very privileged and honored that uh, I will get a call seeing if I want to work next to Kevin in an actual kitchen uh, <laughs> every once in a while, and I have a ton of fun doing it with him. Um, and it amazes me that I'm allowed the responsibility. Um, Kevin is, like I said, a, a very historic chef here in Portland um, and a very interesting uh, human to talk to and has talk about a guy who really knows food and culture. Kevin has, Kevin's food is so awesome, so simple, and so uh, crystal clear because of how much he knows. It's like the more you know, the more simplistic you get. And that's the beauty of the restaurant. Uh, Kurt uh, curated what was, uh, what was, what still is uh, one of the best wine lists, if not the best wine lists in town. Super deep, uh, super knowledgeable, and super generous, man. He would, you'd, you'd, that used to be the hangout for winemakers. People from the Valley would come in and post up at the bar at Davenport, order a nice bottle of wine. Kurt's gonna open and pour you tons of nice wine. Everyone in the room, you know, I've met Dr. Lucen there. I've met, you know, everyone in the wine business flows through Davenport at some time. Lone Wolf likes to host a lot of our events there. We're going to host one uh, next week. Um, it's just a, a very important space and I encourage you to, I'll, I'll connect you with Jeremy because he has a lot to say and he can, was Kurt's best friend. So I'll leave uh, the very tall task of describing Kurt up to Jeremy. Sorry, Jeremy, threw you under the bus there, um, but had to do it. Um, uh, a great place, yeah. We talked a little bit earlier, you mentioned you brought up Anna Lemma and we talked a little bit about the gorge kind of off camera before we started. Tell me about sort of your interest in the gorge and uh, where how you've seen it uh, kind of grow as a wine region. Yeah, you know, um, I wish I knew more about the gorge. Um, essentially, it's a stunningly beautiful place, so it's obvious why people would be attracted to it. Um, uh, I think it really stems probably from my early, that the, that er, that first early time with Nate at in Hood River at the May, uh, being like this is really special, uh, and then representing the Analemma wines. Uh, obviously, this coincides with my love of Minthia and Albarino, which they have planted there. Uh, I think at the time, it would represented something different. Uh, I, my my I, my understanding of uh, the Willamette Valley was still very in its infancy, and I I felt this is me. This is think I have to go back and put think of me like 
just getting into wine and like being really into like the Dresner catalog, which is amazing. Like Joe Dresner, that's a whole story that I could go into, like a pioneer in natural wine, uh, in importing natural wine to this, uh, to the United States market. Um, so I was kind of just, when I was starting out, again, to go back to avant your, the definition of avant-garde, like uh, was looking for something different. And to me, the Willamette Valley was, was not different and the gorge was different and it was beautiful and uh, I was drawn to those aspects of it and uh, the different varieties that are grown out there. Um, but uh, since those initial feelings to it, which I still have, I just happened to get more drawn into the valley after the fact. Um, so, you know, if I'm being optimistic, I can uh, think about the gorge as a place that I still have to discover and a place that I still have to learn a lot from. Uh, part of that will come through my relationship with Andrew and Matthias and representing those sparkling wines which are made in the gorge. Uh, part of that is uh, just talking to Graham more, trying to go out and visit Nate more. I know he's very busy. I, you know, I, I wish I saw Stephen at an alumna more. Uh, I, at PDX, I also used to represent Bethany Kimmel. Those wines, the color collector wines. Uh, I've known Julia from Loop de Loop. She used to be a rep at CNG, so like, I've known her forever. I've never been out there. She's doing great things. Like, uh, the sky's the limit out there, and I'm just kind of saving it for I'm for later, you know, in my back pocket. <laughs> Not on purpose, but just. I mean, Yuri, what Yuri's doing out there at White Salmon Baking Company and his new project uh, with, you know, Gravner's nephew, Bering Amphora, like, that's a, that's a huge producer that's going to make a huge wave for the Gorge, uh, and that's just kind of getting online. I mean, Brian McClintock, you know, of, you know, whatever, Psalm, the movie, uh, is living out there, you know, so people, Raj is, you know, a close friend with Nate and uh, uh, Abe from Sholium Project, they come up here a lot, like the, the lens is being more and more, or the, the, the spotlight's being more and more sh uh, shown on that terroir, uh, and uh, rightfully so. Um, it's awesome to be in the, this is a total tangent, but it, it, it's, awesome to be in the Portland wine scene because you're sandwiched between two amazing regions and uh, all within relative driving distance, you know. It's a pretty special thing to be a part of. I got one last question for you. Speaking of Raj, I asked, he's the only other person I've ever asked this question to. So, what is the most unreal bottle of wine you've had? Oh man, see I'm really bad at this. Uh, I. I'm not good at taking notes when I'm tasting wine. Um, I'm not, I'm not, I've never done W set. I've never done quartermaster sommelier. I, I'm very self-taught. So like my tasting notes are pretty rudimentary compared to most other people's I'd say. At least let me like narrow it down to a few. I mean, like I said, that, that, that night at Nate's at the, at the May one summer, I mean, he opened a number of different bottles of wine that were all kind of on another level. I mean, I could think of, like uh, crazy wines from Marcel Dice that he loves from Alsace, which happens, you know, the sun is in the Wasserman portfolio now. Um, great bottles of Burgundy. Um, an aha moment, though. There's just, it, it's either, the answer is either it's too many to list, or 
I, I don't contextualize it that way. I guess uh, um, some of the most stunning, shocking wines maybe uh, would maybe I would be like to go back to Crete maybe would be a, a, a fun way of answering this question, though not like the best bottle of wine I've ever had, but like to taste wines that are world class and uh, to taste wine that's like world class, you could mistake it for Burgundy or Barolo made on some island uh, in a, like an oxidative manner via blending, via all these different techniques uh, to have it come out and still be such a beautiful wine, which like Alban, for example, he like bugs me about these wines all the time. He'll like, he's obsessed with them and like he'll, he like the last time PDX got some of the wine, he, this guy is so crazy. He doesn't release wine in vintage. Like he'll release 2007 and then be like, the next vintage will be 95. And you're like, what is going on in your mind? Um, so anyway, he released uh, like a Tete de Cuvée uh, 2004. I forget what the name of the wine was, but Alban messaged me. He's like, I'm drinking this wine right now. And my mind is like blown. I'm with people that are winemakers, and we have like we're speechless. And was, is that the best wine that they've ever had? No, uh, one maybe, but like it's it's more about the context of the wine. So another way of me answering that would be like probably sitting at a dinner table, uh, Pierre Auvernois dinner table with my parents. I mean, all of the wines that he opened were unlabeled, and on per maybe on per on purpose for the for the exercise of what we were doing, but probably just unlabeled because why label something that you're just going to keep. Um, anyway, opening these bottles of wine and quizzing all the, all of us wine professionals around the room. Um, what vintage do you think this is? And you know, these, these are wines that are like pretty much no sulfur wines. Um, this is a whole topic that I'm not going to try to get into, but I do believe to dip just my toe into a very controversial, controversial subject. I do believe that natural wines taste better before they come to the United States. Um, so I've had bottles of Auvergne here that are great. Some are flawed and the flaws are fine in wine. That's not a problem, but I'm saying tasting those wines at the dinner table that have never moved out of the cellar that have always been at the same temperature. Basically, we would taste these wines. They'd be so fresh. They'd be so, uh, you know, wines from the Jura aren't powerful, but uh, powerful in their own way. Incredible wines. And, you know, in my, in my mind, you know, I'm thinking, well, this can't be that old because there's no sulfur in this wine. So, like, how would it still be this good? And he'd be like, this is from 1992. And you're just like, what? I don't understand how this is. And uh, so to, to basically sidestep your question and more answer the question is like wines that have like surprised me and like wowed me and like shocked me uh, are probably like I would go to those two places off the top of my head. Um, but I've been lucky enough to drink wines way outside my budget. You know, I, you know, people always remark about my Instagram, which is, you know, silly. And uh, sometimes I'm self-conscious about how it makes me look as far as uh, like I only want to drink these wines or something. Um, I've just been so lucky to 
meet generous people. You know, these wines typically on my, they're not my wines. Like I'm just happy, luckily, lucky enough to be in a place to enjoy them. Um, so yeah, I've just, I've drank countless awesome bottles and I, I couldn't pick a favorite child essentially. Um, uh, my own personal taste, obviously I love Albarino for, for white wine, but you know, white Burgundy, amazing, Riesling, I mean, the German Riesling is like the apex maybe for me. Um, but I'll, I'll speak about Syrah real fast because I haven't said anything about Syrah. I love the Northern Rhone one. So, um, you know, if I had to pick a, a, maybe I'll quantify this as like a desert island red variety. I, I think it would definitely pick Syrah from the Northern Rhone. I mean, like I was lucky enough to, for example, to represent Terry Alamond when I worked at PDX. We had that part of the Kermit Lynch catalog, which is another, you know, huge famous uh, importer that I should have talked about but didn't have time to. Fantastic. Well, I know there's obviously more, but I'm going to wrap it up there. Oh, there will there'll be a second edition exactly. someday. Exactly, second edition someday. So is there anything else that you, anything I didn't ask that I would wish I'd asked or anything else you'd like to mention that we didn't mention? Uh, there's one thing. Okay. It is a big thank you to you, Rich, for doing what you do. This is very important. Oral history is very important. And... Uh, I'm honored to be interviewed, and I think it's important for future generations. Please, climate change, let that happen. Um, for them to look back at this someday, you know, it, it might just be one person that listens to one interview, but at some point, it'll make a difference. Mm -hmm. So thank you for you, to you and what you do. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Of course. Thank you for your time and hospitality. Thank you, you haven't even eaten the pizza yet. Thank you for burning through all my camera batteries. Yes. And I'm going to let you off the hook. Uh, awesome. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University, with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.